But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. Headlines, breaking news. It's another hurricane. Oh, no, wait a minute. It's an earthquake. Oh, no, it's another riot going on. Oh, the world is falling apart. Every day, another shocking headline makes you wonder, what will tomorrow bring? That's why those who know what's coming are using today to prepare. I'm talking about getting your family some high-quality emergency food from My Patriot Supply. My Patriot Supply is the nation's leading preparedness company. They've been in business going on 14 years now, and they've served millions of American families. Now, they want to help you. By giving you $50 off their popular four-week emergency food kit, you'll get four weeks of food per person with meals designed to give you more than 2,000 calories a day. Oh, by the way, this food stays fresh for up to 25 years in proper storage. So it will be there when you need it. Other food goes bad fast. So don't wait. Go to preparewithsouthernsense.com and claim your four-week emergency food kit. You'll save 50 cents per 50 cents. No, not 50 cents. $50 per kit if you act now. Now, you can go to preparewithsouthernsense.com, or if you're listening to the show on my website, just go to the top left-hand corner, click on prepare. Go to Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Don't wait. Do it today.
All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Southern Central Listening Live on Blog Talk Radio, uh, SHR Media, um, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeart, Facebook, YouTube, Global Enlightenment Radio, half a dozen other places. I have no idea where we are anymore. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, oh, man, what a confusing day and way to start the day. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I forgot to oh, tell yeah. people to go to our website, which is the name of the show. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Um, as for anyone trying to call into the show, we have a set routine where we start with the intro, and then we do a dedication to a fallen hero. And after our first guest calls in, then we open up the phone lines to the public. So if you're looking for a comment, we're not taking callers until the, the second part of the show falls in. So, Curtis, whew, can I get that all out one breath? <laughs> yeah, you did. And um, it's, it's just one of those days I just heard from uh, a caller that wants to speak later about um, the Supreme Court upholding um, the Texas ban on abortion. But there's a little bit more to it, and I guess we'll get to her um, in time. But um, I am enjoying this nice um summer winter here in florida after being up in philly for two weeks <laughs> so mm. two mm. two more weeks it'll be christmas i guess without snow yeah uh, right around the corner right around the corner all right so we've got a lot to talk about we've got ourselves some really great guests matter of fact one of the reasons why i'm so out of breath and scrambling heritage foundation sent me our guest just 10 minutes before coming on air so i had to scramble to pull up all that information. So we're starting off with our guest, with Cicely Davis. She's running for a Congress out of Minnesota District 5. She's up against Ilion Omar. Ooh, is that going to be a fight? Uh, then we have Matt Rosenberg. He'll be returning to us. He's got a book out that's called What Next, Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. Uh, there's also a lot to talk to him about with all the continuing uh, rampages that are going on in Los Angeles, San Francisco, now San Diego, New York, Chicago, Detroit. Uh, it's all this smash and grab. Uh, this is, and I'm, t- I'm telling you, this has to be orchestrated because if you look at some of the news clips, you see actually vans, you know, moving vans pulling up to these stores as they get emptied. This is not a random rampage. This is this is getting out of hand, but we're going to talk to Matt about that. That's for later on. Then we have another candidate. He's for running for U.S. Senate out of Arizona against Mark Kelly, Justin Olson. And then we have out of New Jersey, another congressional candidate, Billy Prempe for New Jersey District Number 9. And our guest from the Heritage Foundation is the none other but James Carafano. So we have a lot to do and a lot to talk about. Whew. Can I catch my breath? I would say so. Yeah. And um <laughs> like I said, I, I had problems, you know, trying to get on this morning because the way the internet is set up, you, you want to download something that you think, you know, it's innocently what you want to download, but they have ways of sticking things in there and then when you open a download it's something else like a different browser or whatever. So yeah. I had problems getting on because I couldn't find my favorites section, and I'm going to have to get rid of that after the show. Well, believe it or not, James Carafano, one of his expertise is net security. 
So maybe you can ask him about that. <laughs> but uh, like I said, we have so much more to talk about. And Sarge, yeah, I see you there in the chat room. Very funny. <laughs> Subway at 2 a.m., Sarge. Good going. little comment there to Jesse Smollett. Anyway, anyone that listens to the show knows that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero or heroes. And recently there was a gentleman who had sent me a message and asked me to do this dedication. Uh, matter of fact, the one, Curtis, that you'll be doing with um, Vito, Vito next week, because I will not – yeah, Vito Esposito, Mamma Mia, no Sharia, will be sitting in for me next week because I'm having surgery on uh, Thursday. They're going to replace my knee replacement. So uh, I'm going to be a hurting puppy. So Vito is kind enough to sit in for me next Friday. Uh, but that dedication, Curtis, if you would be kind enough to do the dedication because it goes out to a Navy sub uh, that was lost during testing, uh, I'm pretty sure you know about uh, this dedication. Oh, yeah, I know about you the information. Yeah. So, yeah, I know um, about I feel the like uh, that sub. We, we had lost two during that period. It was the Thresher and the Scorpion. Right. The Thresher is the one that he asked to have dedicated. Uh, but this is one of the dedications he asked me to do. And yeah. this is going out to Army Chief Warrant Officer Kenneth uh, V. Welch and Navy Petty Officer First Class Michael Ray Wagner. They were killed on September twentieth, 1984, in Beirut, Lebanon. And this is pieced together from several different things. If anyone remembers back to September 20th, 1984, that is when um, Muslims extremists tied to ISIS and Hezbollah uh, bombed the Beirut Embassy Annex on September 20th, 1984. Two Americans were killed, 29 in total were killed in that bombing. And this is from a dedication page to Kenneth Welch, and it reads, Kenneth V. Welch was a great son and a wonderful brother. He was the father of two sons who were six and eight years old when he was killed. This is from a description of the, of the killings from a book called Sacred Rage, The Wrath of Muslim, Militant Islam, by Robin Wright, page 22. Urgent, Beirut, Lebanon, Associated Press. Lebanese state and private radios reported an explosion Thursday at the East Beirut Annex of the U.S. Embassy. London state radio said the explosion was in the building and may have started a fire. Associated Press, Thursday, September 20th, 1984. Chief Warrant Officer Kenneth Welch had been in Lebanon less than four months working as an operations coordinator in the Office of Defense Intelligence Agency. With the bulk of the agency staff, he had moved to the annex less than two months earlier for security. Christian-controlled East Spate route was considered safer than the Muslim West, where all the earlier attacks and kidnappings had taken place. Welch was typing a report at his desk on the third floor shortly before noon that Thursday when a cream-colored Chevrolet van maneuvered past a concrete dragon's teeth barricade and several Lebanese guards at the cordoned 
entrance road leading to the annex. Welch appears to have stood up after hearing guards fire shots at the van. He was not fast enough. The force of the 2,000-pound load of explosives blew the tall, solidly built officer against the wall. His neck snapped. Thirteen others also died. More than 30 were injured. We are not against the American people, said a young member of the Shiite Party of God two weeks later. We are against oppression and injustice. The fire of Islam will burn those who are responsible for these practices against Islam. We have been dominated by the U.S. government and others for too long. A leading Shiite academic put it another way. The extreme expression of fundalism are expressions of despair. September 20th, 1984, was a steamy Mediterranean day, calm by Beirut standards. Kenny Rogers, a tall, strapping Scot, doing temporary duty in Beirut, was standing guard in the parking lot of the American Embassy Annex on Christian East Beirut, waiting for British Ambassador David Mears to conclude a courtesy call on his counterpart, Reginald Bartholomew. A royal military policeman, Rogers was part of a beefed-up security team for British diplomats. Guard duty seemed much easier in the Christian section, which had been witnessed comparatively few vicious attacks so frequent in the Muslim-dominated West over the previous three years. The site added to the psychology. Akhar is a quiet residential suburb of the hillside villas and luxury apartments built along winding little roads facing the sea. Unlike most other parts of the capital, Okar was unscarred by a decade of war, but the British ambassador's three bodyguards still had to be on alert at the beige tile and concrete annex, where the majority of U.S. diplomats had been rebased just two months before. As he waited near Mir's armored minister sedan, Roger's attention was drawn to the end of the Gordon Road in front of the annex. I looked along the road and saw a light-colored Chevrolet van with diplomatic plates, he recalled the next day. There seemed to be an argument going on between the gate guard and the vehicle. There was a shot fired by the man in the van. The van accelerated down the road in the direction of the embassy annex. One of the other guards fired possibly three rounds at the van. By this time, the van was almost parallel to me. Then he realized exactly what was about to happen. The greatest fear of foreigners in Lebanon. A bomb-laden vehicle was heading straight for the entrance of the diplomatic facility. I fired five rounds through the door, Rogers said. I saw the driver fall over. As he fell over, he pulled the steering wheel to the right. The vehicle slid sideways and hit the American van parked at the side. Then it blew up. The heroic of Rogers and a Lebanese guard who the Americans claimed actually fired the crucial shots, prevented the van with its 3,000 pounds of explosives from getting within 10 yards of the front door and what an American colonel supervising the aftermath estimated would have been a death toll five times greater. Fourteen were killed. Only two of them were Americans, and dozens were injured. The only two Americans who died were Chief Warrant Officer Second. Kenneth V. Welch, U.S. Army, Chief Petty Officer Michael Wagner, U.S. Navy.
This is from thegreensboro.com, written by Michael Wagner's father. My son, Michael Ray Wagner, was killed in the Beirut Embassy Annex when the building exploded after a bomb-filled vehicle was driven into the basement on September 20, 1984. Michael attended Gardner-Webb University from 73 through 77, where he managed the baseball team. He volunteered for the Navy in 1977. He completed many intelligence schools. He was recognized as intelligence specialist in Korea with the U.S. Army and established an A school for naval reservists in Dallas. Michael volunteered for duty as an IS officer in Beirut, Lebanon, beginning November 25, 1983. Of course, Michael is very special to me. He was our firstborn, and he's outgoing. Jovial personality was contagious. Many of his comrades said that he was set the tone of the day for work in which they were involved. He was a prankster and enjoyed having pranks pulled on him. He loved children, and when he was stationed in Korea, one Christmas with little to do, he organized a detail of sailors to paint rooms in an orphanage. Of all things, he had a barbecue planned and carried out on July 4, 1984, in Lebanon. He should have known better, but as far as I know, it turned out all right. His mother is gone, but he is survived by his father, Donald Wagner of McLeansville, a brother, Stephen Wayne Wagner of Wendell, and a sister, Rebecca W. Quaid of Julian, submitted by Donald Wagner. On September 20, 1984, they took Ken Welch from the world in a hit on the U.S. Embassy. An expert testified that the Iran-funded group Hezbollah had incorporated and infiltrated construction workers while the embassy annex was being constructed. Hezbollah took those plans to the Bika Valley in Lebanon and practiced the entrance in a bomb-filled vehicle to the embassy many times. The plan was more than likely was practiced before Kenneth Welch even arrived in Lebanon. Kenneth was a great son and a wonderful brother. And remember, he was the father of two sons who were six and eight years old when he was killed. Today's show is dedicated to Chief Warrant Officer Welch and to Petty Officer First Class Wagner. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our future. We also dedicate to them, to also all the men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon, My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, up on the Global Enlightenment Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeart, and half a dozen other places, too. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Uh, Just go to their name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Oh, good Lord. I'm the hostess with the least craziest, mostest, Annie, the radio ticketee, along with Curtis going, scratching his head, Benicle, what's going on here today? <laughs> hey, you, never, you never know what to expect on Friday. Oh, man, no, no not at all, not at all. Oh, as I said, you know, just before, um, uh, yes, Duck, the kitty was here. I just chased her away, trying to climb onto the keyboard. Um, and my kitty cat named Puppy. Uh, but just before, just 10 minutes before coming on air, Heritage Foundation sent me the name of the guest, guest the show sending us. So adding to our lineup last minute is James Carafano. And boy, with everything that's going on uh, with the the Ukraine and what's going on with Korea, what's going on with the Russian rape, with the teeth in the straight, rattling their saber, Holy cow, are things going nuts out there? So James is the perfect timing for him to come on. But we're waiting for our first guest to call in, Cecily Davis, who's running for Minnesota District 5 against Ilion Omar, who actually, believe it or not, Ilion Omar has her claws out again. She's going after Lauren Bobet. And, oh, my gosh. 
um, Lauren made some sort of a comment. Uh, I, what the heck was it? Oh, um, she was in the elevator with Ilian Omar mm-hmm. at the time, and they were leaving the Capitol. And a police officer saw the elevator open and saw Ilian Omar standing next to Lauren Bobart and came rushing towards them. And Lauren said, I see Fred all over his face and he's reaching. The doors are shutting like I can't I can't open it like what's happening, Bobart said. And then she looked to her left and there was Ilian Omar standing and she said, Well, she doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine. And because of that, Ilian Omar, <laughs> who she's called a member of the Jihad Squad, got all pissed off. And she wants to have her censured. So during a debate about mm. censoring uh, Republican Representative Paul Gozar, she brought up the I've heard about that. idea of, yeah. So she wants her not only censured, but pulled off all of the committees she sits on. Believe it or not, we don't have I mean, a we don't have a First Amendment right anymore. It's just sad. <laughs> but they can sad. say anything that they want. Yeah. So sensitive. I mean, right? You know, uh, uh, Ilya Omar. Oh, some people did something on nine eleven. Really? Uh, and then she's the one who said, "Oh, care wasn't founded." until after 9-11 in response to the attacks against Muslim Americans. No, CARE was around years before 9-11. No, 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 no. Your, your Kia is not going to work here. It is not going to work. And, oh, by the way, Duck, the cat's back. <laughs> oh, man. I put my two outside. <laughs> no, I knew no, they no. would be my, all my, up on me. <laughs> no, my cats are indoor cats because I live uh, off of a pretty busy street, and I've had yeah. a few cats run over. And so, mine are all indoor. They are pampered. They are special. They don't. No, no, they don't go outside because we've got um, yeah. we, we've got some raccoons that'll go after them. Uh, there are some dogs that wander through my yard. So, no, no, I protect my babies. I do. Well, mine are outside because of the fact that you know I got a big yard, and even we we live on a private street, and there's really no traffic that comes through there, not at all. And they're up in the trees and everything. But when I clap my hands, that's the way I train them. They come. It's time to come in and eat. <laughs> but they stay in at night and, and most of the day. I have to let them out every once in a while. They get a little antsy. I let them stay in all day. But if you if well, you do my, live near a busy street, you have to be mindful of the fact that they could get run over. Yeah, yeah. And the way some people tear around here, matter of fact, a few weeks back, um, the roads were wet and slippery after recent rain, and a lot of people drive golf carts. Well, a bunch of kids wow. came around the turn. Because my house, the property is, is a hard bend. And if you take that too fast, you're going to skid. Well, they flipped the golf cart, and there were four of them in there, right in front of my house, right by my front driveway. So, of course, I get out there, and they're wandering all over the middle of the road with cars driving right past them. And I'm like, oh, my God, someone's going to get hurt. So I 
chased them all into my house, called 911, and my house was packed with EMS and, and police officers and everything. It's like, I'm looking at the EMS. Wow, well, you had a flashback. not here huh? for me. <laughs> yeah, this time you're not here for me. <laughs> he goes, yeah, well, yeah, I recognize you. <laughs> well, I was thinking of your police days, you know, and, you know, your time in law enforcement, going to scenes and <laughs> things like that. I wouldn't oh, even no, want to imagine that you thinking as a police officer. No, I was, actually. You know, it, that's what kicked in. Um, that's exactly what kicked in. So uh, my training said, no, 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 this is not cool. So I had traffic cones in the back of my car, my, my SUV. So I'm blocking off the road so they don't get hit. The, the cart doesn't get hit. No one smashes into it. As I'm talking to 911, walking them through. So it uh, looks like our first guest is in on the line. And let's hope that this is if my computer behaves. All right. I hope this is Cecily. Is this Cecily? This is Cecily. Hello. <laughs> Hi. How are you today? Hi. Man, I am we doing well. News... Thank you for asking. That's we good. have a news-filled day today with you. So Cecily Davis is running for Congress out of Minnesota District Number 5 against Ilian Omar. We were just discussing Ilian Omar, her attempt to have uh, Lauren Bobert um, censured. And I was like, just because she made a comment <laughs> in the elevator, next thing you know, she wants her yanked off all the committees, causing her all types of names. <laughs> I love it. I love when the right. cat fight happens. <laughs> <laughs> and it is indeed a so, cat yeah. fight. You know, it's, 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 been, it's been interesting to watch. My opponent um, never stopped short of giving me lots of material to speak upon and, and, and to... Um, I'm really looking forward to the people of this district to hold their account at the ballot box. Now, I was reading some accounts, and some of the people in the newspaper, in the media, really don't have too much confidence in those of us on the right because they're saying, you're a long shot. Um, I think that idea is a long shot. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, her approval rating is sinking. And it's sinking fast. Um, I think in combination of the leadership, um, well, and I use that word faintly, um, but what we're suffering under the Biden administration in combination with um, all of the um, activist theater that's happening with Ilhan Omar and the squad, um, the Jesse Smollett case, and so forth, I think that um, progressives and their supporters are realizing that their policies don't work. Um, You know, and uh, the race card is really getting worn out. And so they're realizing that they're running out of play, um, that it is going to be a time where we're going to simply have to come to some realizations that America is not a racist country. Um, And uh, they're going to have to come to the center here um, as far as, you know what, accepting common sense and stop start operating in that in that mode. And that to me is really encouraging. Well, you recently wrote a couple of pieces on Jesse Smollett. And, you know, he's still sticking by that stupid story that, you know, he was actually truly attacked by MAGA bigots. Uh, uh, no, when the two guys that did attack him admitted to the whole setup and how he walked them through the whole thing. Uh, but he's in this la-la land world that he still is playing the victim card. When a jury, a jury, a very mixed jury of his own peers, turned around and says, no, out of six charges, we find you guilty on five of them. And he has the possibility of facing some real jail time. 
Yeah, you know, Josie Smollett, this is that case, um, as I said in my op-ed, um, that case is as sensational as it is disturbing. But, you know, he had every reason to believe that he would be um, physically and metaphorically hoisted on the people's shoulders and carried away like a champion because we've seen it play out and, and, and actually fare well for people who have done so. Um, but thankfully, um, he was held um, to account and um, justice was served. Let's hope that he gets what he absolutely deserves. But I'm hoping that the narrative, um, that people really understand what's really going on and that, you know, the narrative that America is a racist country and that every transaction, every system, and every interaction is a relic of the Jim Crow era, that that starts to fade away and they realize that, you know what, we've made a lot of progress and that this country certainly is not more racist than it used to be. And I would like to yep. add that um, there was a great cost in, in manpower and, and things like that um, that, you know, was the result of this investigation. So he wasted the people's time and money, and we should never forget that. Absolutely. Well, not, only that, not only that, with the manpower that he pulled off for his investigation, it pulled manpower from other areas in the city, and young black children died because the police manpower was not there to protect them. So he actually, his actions cost lives. Absolutely. And, and let's not, you know what, the race baiting, that is so important that people really understand here. What Smollett's guilty of the worst kind of race baiting, but that path was well paid before he even decided to act. You know, for progressives for, for quite some time, for some years, they've sought to weaponize identity politics and wield it as a tool for political power. And that has just worn out. And um, you know what? I'm, I'm so glad that he was held accountable. Um, I hope that people realize that this is, you know, hopefully this is a case that, you know what, really kind of shines a flashing red light um, as a warning to all of us. Um, for those on the right and for the left, um, of what's actually happening here. And um, you know what? This country is a, exceptional. It's a great country. We've made a lot of progress. And that there are people who are really, truly looking to to force and um, they want racial divide. They absolutely want racial divide so that they can completely dismantle the American experiment. And we just simply cannot allow that to happen. Well, we've been seeing this all across our college campuses where now they have dormitories where if you're white, you're not allowed into them. Uh, we saw that famous video that was playing all over the Internet of these two white kids sitting in a common cafeteria area, study area, and they're being chased away saying, no, this is for minorities only. You're, you're invading our space. I'm like, wait a minute. When did our college campuses get segregated? Didn't we fight the civil rights war to desegregate and allow everyone to mingle equally as one, as one people? Suddenly now you have to have a safe space because you're a minority? Wait a minute. When did, when did our fight for civil rights suddenly become null and void? Right. And unfortunately, identity politics isn't about respecting or understanding and learning from our differences. It's really about accentuating and then punishing individuals for them. And this kind of, this kind of thinking toxic, it just 
it tosses toxic ice into the very concept of the American melting pot. And uh, you know what? The, the whole point of it, um, I think of it as, you know, this revolutionary path, um, which is really aimed to destroy or dismantle the Constitution and the funding principles of this country. Um, and that's precisely the point, though. That's exactly what they're going for. The country, if the country in their, in their mindset and their narrative is set up to facilitate racism at every turn, then the only solution, as they suggest, must be to completely tear it down. Um, and so we're seeing that with Justice Smollett. We're seeing that across the country and, and our college campuses. We're seeing that in regression um, with race relations. And, um, you know, I think the majority of people are waking up. I think um, that they just simply won't stand for it. The simple fact is, is that we are not more racist than we used to be. This is not a racist country. I mean, we certainly have racist people. But in general, America People are not breaking borders. They're not dying to come into America because we are an existing racist country. They are here and they want to be here because they believe in the American experiment and they want to take part of the American dream. That's the real narrative that should be coming out of this country. Absolutely. Instead, we have now the teaching of critical race theory. Now, this is something that's been simmering for quite a couple of decades. But suddenly now, with the rise of Black Lives Matter, which has also been simmering for a couple of decades, but this idea of victimhood, it made it really ripe to bring forth critical race theory, which is nothing more than the rewriting of Karl Marx's original work, which was critical theory, baiting class against class. But that doesn't work here in America because we don't have a big difference in class. What we have is that they could use was victimhood and use race as victimhood. So all it is is just Marxism repackaged. But we've got school districts embracing it, and we've got parents trying to fight it. And this gives rise to now the movement of Black Lives Matter, the new smash and grab because I'm victim, so you owe me. It gives us a whole new level of lawlessness. Then you throw on top of that defunding the police, because now the police, it doesn't matter what race the police officer is, the whole race, the police department's racist, it doesn't matter that it's, it's a mixed pot. But their, their lack of logic and their hypocrisy in the things they're doing is absolutely stunning. And this is what you're fighting against. Absolutely. So all those things you mentioned, the, the smash and grab, the defunding the police, critical race theory, you know, white privilege and intersectionality, um, white fragility, and on and on and on. These are all remnants of this Marxist socialist agenda, okay? And critical race theory in itself, and and you've heard me say before when I was first on, was that it absolutely should not be taught in our K-12 education, okay? It should not be taught to children. But critical race theory um, and those kind of terms, it's just – it's so it's so detrimental um it's, it's for the left the connected tissue that runs through every issue is this obnoxious claim of systemic racism and that's what's breeding this you owe me america owes me something i'm entitled to burn i'm entitled to loot i'm entitled to vandalize and it takes on all those forms um but and it, it's 
it, it comes from this understanding or this thought that it, everything, like I said, is a relic of the Jim Crow era. And there's no debate and there's no defense because the accusation is designed to skip the trial and move straight to sentencing. So if it's a symbol, it's torn down. If it's a person, they're deplatformed, they're silenced, they're fired or docked on Twitter Audrey, Twitter Audi. And if it's a business or corporation, it will be listed in the New York Times. We're going to practice cancel culture. So unless you go with our narrative and give us what we want and what we will demand, we will absolutely tear down and dismantle the American way. And that is what people cannot go for. We need, in order for us to be successful here in America and on the globe, America must continue to succeed and go on as a free and liberated country. Ooh, go preach, girl. Go preach. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't need to get on a soapbox today. I'm just so passionate about this because things are unfolding. And, you know, we are, again, and I said it before and I say it again to your listeners, my race isn't just a local race. It isn't just about CD5 Minnesota and, and the core of Minneapolis. This is a national race. We have to all band together to send a clear message to an Ilhan Omar and an AOC and a Presley and a Khalid and a Cori Bush and a, and a, you know, a Bernie Sanders that you simply cannot have this country. You can't have it. You can't have it. We say we, we're moving towards socialism, but this is absolute total Marxism out being That's fueled through absolutely. anarchy. And if, if we don't have law and order, then we cannot survive. You know, people are fleeing the urban areas because of the utter destruction that is going on, which is destroying our economy. And, you know, you, you burn down these whole entire neighborhoods. You actually now have Walgreens and CVS shutting and closing stores permanently, so jobs are going. There's going to be neighborhood blight because it's going to be burned out, destroyed buildings that will take generations for people to finally decide to go back and try to rebuild. Yeah, I've seen it in the streets of Brooklyn where riots in the 60s and 70s, the buildings there in the 80s and 90s were still burned out hulks. And slowly and surely, gentrification happened in the 90s. That's three decades of a neighborhood decay but this is what they're they're doing in california they're doing in illinois in new york they're doing it throughout the nation in in urban areas that are controlled by democrats notice it's all in blue states and and i think that's really important that you brought that up because um you know i have friends and family members who have a real problem with me pointing out that it's democratic cities But there, it is an absolute, these are democratic cities. These are democratic policies. These are democratic leaders. And because of that, you're going to get these democratic, um, in my opinion, these outcomes. It's poor leadership. Um, It's it's decision-making that's not for the people, okay? And, And when you talk about those inner city areas, those are important. There are people who prefer to live in cities, um, the urban areas, for specific reasons. They want to enjoy the convenience of it. They want to enjoy the nightlife. They like to be close to local bars and restaurants. Perhaps their job um, is close. And, and so they have, a, they, have a, they have a right to choose to live in urban areas. But when they're overrun and you are experiencing mass exodus for, for people who can afford it and businesses, 
And yet the people who are left there feel um, abandoned. They feel attacked. They don't feel safe going out of their homes. They feel trapped in their own homes and in their own cities. This is a criminal tragedy. This is a tragedy. Um, We are in a state of emergency with criminality in this country. And um, we have to change the leadership. And it should have been done yesterday, but everyone has an opportunity now to run the run to the ballot box yeah. and put in new leaders that can change our cities around for the sake of the people of and, this country. And let me add that I was just up in Philadelphia for two weeks, and the lawlessness mm. there is, is, I mean, it's its like something out of a, a Mad Max movie. You have people who double park in the street, cut the, the lights out, and they leave their cars there. Then you have other people that's driving around in the in the dark with no lights on. And the thing about it is the, the police officers are not allowed to do anything because they have some, um, some kind of ordinance um, or policy towards police now that they can't mess with people who are, you know, committing minor infractions. And so you get lawlessness. Not only that, the murder rate in Philadelphia is way over 530-something. It's the, the most in the, the city's history. And and there was a study done a couple of years ago on the top 20 urban cities in America as far as crime rate and poverty. And and the top 18 were run by Democrats and their failed policies, some for decades. The other two were run by independent mayors. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of facts behind the fact that the urban areas are, are the way they are because of failed democratic policies. That's all I wanted to add. <laughs> so much for the city of brotherly love. And Thank yet, you. There's, also the, there's also the policies of decriminalizing what they assume are minor crimes. But years ago, um, we had this policy in New York City, that if you went after those minor crimes, the the littering on the sidewalk, uh, the hooker that's pacing back and forth, or the dealer selling on the corner, or you go for um, jaywalking, you go after those minor crimes, and the people in the neighborhood see that you're proactive. It, number one, keeps the bad guys out because they see that you're actively enforcing the law, and the people in the neighborhood feel safer because you're enforcing the law. The quality of life issues, if you tackle them, help eliminate all the bigger issues. And it brought down the crime rate, less robberies, less homicides, you know, less burglaries. But they have the attitude, no, 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 we, we don't want to clutter the courts with these little tiny you know, cases. You know, no one's really a victim here. Hello? It leads you to know, total victimhood. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know what, you said quality of life, and that is what, that's what we're fighting for here. Right now, um, you know, he, he spoke so eloquently, and Philadelphia has been on my focus. I actually watched, I've been watching Philadelphia the last couple of weeks, and I, I saw that, I think it's 532 or 537, I can't remember, um, murders. But there is an incentive right now. Um, it's, they're almost incentivized to commit crime because they know they won't be held accountable. But what you're talking about when you say 
um, not being held accountable, for, held to account for small crimes. We have to get back to that where there is no small crime because you have to make it so there is no incentive for the criminal or for people to commit a crime, right? And once you have that present, they have to then weigh in the risk. And right now there's no risk. If I commit what's considered or categorized as a petty crime, I won't be held to account. I'll be released and I can go back out and do it again and maybe commit a more serious crime after that and so on and so forth. We have to, we have to desensitize um, the risk of even thinking about, let alone taking that risk of committing a crime. Once you have, have that happen, that quality of life returns um, and people feel safe, businesses feel safe. And um, you know what, then we get that robust, lively urban areas that people so desperately want to live in. That's important, that's really, really important. Well, you know, you've got a fantastic website, which is your name, Cicely Davis, C-I-C-E-L-Y Davis dot com, where you have your platform on there. And when I was reading your platform, I was thinking back to certain issues I was having with my school board. Now, I was not blessed with children, but what you produce from that school ends up affecting how I live and also affects my taxes. My quality of life will depend upon the quality of student you produce, which would either benefit my neighborhood or be a detriment to my neighborhood. So I have to fight for good quality education if I want the neighborhood I live in to be the best it could possibly be. And this is one of the issues you address on your your website. And I was thinking back that at, at one point there was a discipline problem, really, really bad. So now if the child is allowed to act up with no consequences in school, when that child becomes an adult, what do we have? The lawlessness that we now see in Minneapolis, New York, Philadelphia, Detroit, L.A., San Francisco. Because if they can get away with it as a child, what else can they get away with as an adult? Right. And they don't learn to respect authority. They don't learn to operate within the, the parameters of the law. Um, and it then produces lawlessness. Okay. It's because, and then that becomes your rule through life. And so that's the, you know, that's the motive and, and that's the behavior to which you, um, you know, curve your behaviors and make your decisions. Um, that's, that's children falling through the cracks, which is what I talk about in my website. This is, this is underperforming. This is lack of leadership. This is lack of um, teachers not being able to do their jobs. This is a complete failure of our educational system. This is failure in our, in our government leadership, in our city leadership. When you allow children to fall through the cracks, we are actually living through manifested results of not holding children accountable. And so, yeah, we have to get back to the basics. In the classroom, we got to empower parents to, you know, form two-parent homes as much as possible, but we need this morality base. We need a base of morality to which we raise children, and then we can have an expectation to then release them into society to become productive and contributing members of society, not criminals. Exactly, and then with allowing parents to have the power of school choice, they can take their children out of a failing school, put them into a school that will teach them. And if you are unable to teach them, that child's going to grow up without any uh, marketable skills. 
then what's going to happen to that child who's going to be unemployed as an adult? They're going to feel the victimhood. Of course, perfect, ripe fodder for the Democrats for a Democratic vote. I'm a victim. You owe me, so give me. And if you're not going to give me, I'm going to take, which is what we see now. If we cannot produce quality, educated people into our society, we then promote a lawless society. Correct. And we know that vastly the Democratic Party works through um, the education system, through teachers unions and through other work unions. And so they have a direct hand. And so that message of children, and I think that came out of Virginia where the um, (laughs) – Yeah, Loudon. He said that. Yeah, yeah, Loudon says, you know, parents to stay out of their children's education, they have no right. I mean, you say that to mama bears and you lose. You will lose that battle, and we saw that. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about the public school system that is underperforming and failing, we as taxpayers are funding a monopoly, a failing monopoly. Think about the, the – that is just so tragic to me. But that needs to end. Parents absolutely have a right to know what kids are being taught that they should have a right to understand their curriculum. They have a right to pull their children out of a failing school and put them into a successful one because they don't want to raise criminals. They want a child to have, to be able to dream dreams and pursue dreams and to be productive contributors to society. And so, you know what? If the school is not performing, if teachers aren't performing, you know what? We'll take our kids elsewhere. Let that money follow the child. Let the money follow the child, not the school. I guarantee if you do that, we'll see some changes. Yes, and plus get the federal government out of our schools. That's another problem that we need to actually take. Let let the states keep their education money and let it go locally. Let the local people decide what to teach their kids. Get the federal government out. These federal standards are not working. All it's doing, it's, it's empowering the unions. Basically, so we're seeing now a rise here in South Carolina because we are giving more school choice. We're supporting you know these charter schools, these independent academies, these religious foundations that form their own uh, uh, schools. You know, we're seeing a rise in that and a rise in the quality of education. But if you don't give parents a choice, you know, then capitalism's not going to work. That's what choices, what capitalism is. It, you make the choice on where you're going to put your dollars. But the same with the child. Is it not? That's right. That's right. We the people by the people. Parents, parents know what's best for their children, not the government, not teachers, not the teachers' unions. Parents know, parents know what's best for their children, so they, they therefore should have the loudest voice. And any system that um, tries to operate outside of those parameters um, is a failed and failing system, and we should definitely not, certainly not fund it. We should not participate, and we should—that's what we should rail together and dismantle. Parents yeah. now, uh, know what best for what their is, children. Absolutely, and I've seen a lot of fathers <laughs> get in there and really tussle around. So good going, dads. Um, Want to switch a little bit because we only have a few minutes left with you. Um, immigration. This is a big problem. This administration is completely ignoring all immigration laws, all court orders. He had the orders uh, from the court order saying, no, Trump's policy of remain in Mexico is valid. You must adhere to it. Completely ignoring it. 
absolutely. So you get to Congress. What tools do you have to rein in this administration saying, wait a minute, you're violating the law. Um, Can we bring them up on impeachment charges for not fulfilling their oath of office to adhere to the Constitution, the laws of the land? Absolutely. Congress has a lot of power that they actually don't exercise. Um, I've been in, in deep study about how Congress works. In fact, that's the name of the, the title of the book is How Congress Works. And I realized that what we have in Congress right now is an entire side of just activists. They're there to push a certain agenda that has nothing to do with America, and they're, they're failing in their duties. You know, Donald Trump said so wonderfully, if we don't have borders, we don't have a country. This is CS. I'm back online. Is there anybody out there that can hear me? If so, in the chat room, let me know. I'm not sure what happened. I was trying to call our next guest and didn't get him. When I returned, it's like uh, everybody went home. <laughs> okay, you can hear me, Bigfoot. All right. Now it looks like our guest has called him, but... I don't hear anything. So let me see. Um, Our guest will be Matt Rosenberg, but I'm not sure if Matt will be able to hear me or not. So give me a second to see if I can work this out. Matt, can you hear me? I can. All right. This is the co-host of Southern Sense. Um, Seems like we're having a little technical issue here. And Andy has dropped out the host of the show. But can you tell me a little bit uh, about yourself loud and clear? I, you can hear me. Are, are we on the air? We are. So if you oh. would, could you could you give our audience a little um, background about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been on with Annie twice before. I've recently published a book called What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. And uh, I lived in Chicago for 30 years. I got very concerned about what was going on in 2020, violent chaos taking over this city and others. I moved back here and I went deep into the South Side to talk to black people and Latinos in their homes and workplaces, gather their success stories and learn more about, you know, their take on things, what's gone wrong and how to fix it, because we've got a lot of trouble here. Violent crime is the biggest part of it. There's a lot of other stuff relating to schools, city finances, and uh, neighborhood economic development. A lot of work to do. So I wanted to really dive into that, and I did. Found out some uh, some important things and put it all together in this book. And I'm watching what's going on now. I'm still in Greater Chicago, sure. keeping an eye on things. And boy, the violence just won't stop. Um, the organized looting uh, is another thing. They're looking at raising the bridges again this week over the Chicago River to keep organized looters off of the big shopping strip on Michigan Avenue called the Miracle Mile. And to me, if they do that again, they did that twice in 2020 because they lost control. It's uh, If they do it again, it's like saying, we give up. And you really got to scratch so your head and wonder. So what do you mean by raise the the water? Raise the bridges. So the Chicago River river runs through downtown Chicago. 
Yeah, I've seen those and pictures. And a, yeah. a lot of, yeah, a lot of the traffic on the major streets, you know, to get from point A to point B, usually you have to <clears throat> cross a bridge. So a when bridge. the rioting came in 20, 2020, that was one of their strategies because uh-huh. they could not control the rioters and looters. Now they're looking at doing it again. Oh, so they disconnected one part of the city from another downtown. I know, but it's the like, <clears throat> okay. exactly, and it raises a larger issue, is my point, of can you keep your streets safe and under control or not? And so there have been numerous instances of the city losing control of the streets. I mean, in Cook County, which includes Chicago and a lot of suburbs, we just passed one thousand homicides for the year near Thanksgiving. The number continues to grow. It was the first time since 1994 we've had more than 1,000 homicides in Cook County. So we got deep troubles here. So I, I know Chicago has been run by Democrats for decades. Um, you got the, the two dailies, father and son, and mm-hmm. I think Harold Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago, I believe. Um, That's correct. So you're saying that things have really gone downhill even since, you know, the the election of their first black mayor. It's been a long cycle, and I traced that in my book, but yeah. It hasn't been a steady downhill. You know, there have been what you might call go-go years here economically. You know, there are a lot of bright, new, shiny skyscrapers, new bike paths, flower pots, you know, all of that. There were a number of corporate headquarters that moved here. But, you know, the city has lost its middle class. It's it's two cities in one. It's the well-off and the less well-off. And when the you elite, walk, yeah. yeah, when you walk through the, the rougher parts, I mean, it's it's really something. It's like you're walking through a ghost neighborhood. It looks like and increasingly <clears throat> huge sections of the south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago mm-hmm. look like that. Like there are no buildings, you know. <laughs> it's 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 not good. And well, the black population is in particular – Man, they are, they have hit the exits, and they're continuing to run for the exits. Oh, some of them are starting to wake up. Now, if you really look at what's going on in this country now, the middle class is being destroyed because um, mm-hmm. the mandates that came down on a lot of small businesses and, and those um, in the Democratic areas that refused to allow some some businesses to remain open while they allow others so some of these businesses are never coming back. So I think it's all, you know, part of a plan to to eliminate the middle class because when you have socialism, you can only have two classes, an elite, you know, elitist type class and those who are impoverished. And I think they're slowly working towards that because they have completely um, impacted the, the wealth of a lot of people who went into business for themselves. And so, mm-hmm. and I was just up in Philly. I was just discussing this with um, our our last guest, and it is horrible. I was born and raised there, but I was so mm-hmm. glad to get out of Philly. I was there for two weeks. I I came all the way back mm-hmm. to Florida, and I didn't even stop except for gas mm-hmm. <laughs> and something to eat. Wow! But 
I mean, what, uh, the, what 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 did you see going on there? I know they just passed a new oh, record for murder. That's one thing. Yeah, but, over 530-something. There's been over mm-hmm. 38 um, domestic violence deaths where women were killed by their husband or spouse, some of them in broad daylight, some right, you know, in the public um, public um, arena, and some in front of their kids. Not only that, they go through red lights, they they park in the they just park in the middle of the street double park is what they call it up there cut their lights out and they they leave it there all night they they drive around some of them at night with no lights on and the thing about it is law enforcement is not allowed to do anything because um, the politicians in Philadelphia um, felt that um, minorities were being you know misproportionately targeted so they're not allowed to right. stop people for minor infractions like lights out, headlights out, and things like that, going through red lights. So it's like like Andy was talking about earlier, you know, these people, they have no consequences, so they they just do what they want. And when you have lawlessness, you know, you have anarchy. And it was terrible. I was in like three near collisions because of it. I was so happy to get out of there. So that's what I saw. And people are nervous. They're afraid to come out. Because of the mm-hmm. senseless violence, and this is not just happening in Philly and Chicago, and mostly oh, all no. of your urban that are run by Democrats. Los Angeles being one prime example, the uh, police union chief is warning tourists and visitors to stay away. It's that bad there. Um, I wonder, though, about the broader causes of the decline of the middle class. And I hear you loud and clear, you know, on what you were saying regarding, um, you know, mandates for small businesses to close because of COVID-related issues that the government is mandating. But I think there's other things going on too, you know, manufacturing having having declined. And so now to me, that throws the spotlight back on education, but also nonprofits. And I'm not saying, you know, everything's rosy and great because we know it's not, it's the opposite. We're living in very challenging times, but I'll give you an example. Let me give you two examples from the South side of Chicago. Good things that I saw when I went down there. Number one, and these are just points of light, but I think there are more points of light out there than we might know. Number one, in a neighborhood called Woodlawn, uh, there's a nonprofit called Project Hood and a pastor named Reverend Corey Brooks. Um, They're running job training programs for the construction industry and the construction trades. This summer, 18 black female electricians took, took a course and were certified professionally to go to work in the construction trades. Um, down in the Pullman neighborhood, where they used to build those railroad sleeper cars way back when, um, that neighborhood kind of fell apart, uh, and they had a long road back. Uh, one thing they're doing down there as part of a bigger successful redevelopment plan is micro-lending. There's an outfit called the Chicago Neighborhoods Initiative, and they loan primarily uh, to black people about 80% of their loans, and uh one type of borrower that comes in very often are men, ex-convicts, 
and they're borrowing money to buy delivery vans, sprinter vans, and they're going to work for Amazon, but running their own company. They work long hours, but they can make really good money. And sometimes a friend will say, hey, I want in on this. And the owner of a new delivery service will come in for another, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollar loan, buy another van. So, you know, there, there's things happening. There's ways to adapt, but it's been really hard. You know, it used to be you'd, you'd move up north um, for a lot of black folks. I think get a job in a steel mill or a car factory. You know, save money. I, I know one guy. He owns ten residential properties in Englewood, which is, you know, Chirac, actually. Uh, that's, yeah. that's the neighborhood that movie was about. His father and grandfather, though, worked in the factories, meat meatpacking plant and a steel plant. They saved their money. Mm-hmm. They bought real estate early on. He has inherited wealth. So it's kind of interesting. You know, there have always been people who found a way, but I think now the way is harder. And it involves more education and more familiarity with technology. Um, what are your thoughts on all of that stuff? Well, I could tell you, you know, from my experiences in my hometown of Philadelphia, the educational system is, is it sucks. Um, a couple of years yep. ago, the state state took over the school system, and it's no better. These folks are not learning mm-hmm. anything. Um, and what they are learning is not going to help them out here in the real world. And and I, w- I would even say this, you know, from the people that I talk to that are black, they are fed up with it. And and some of the people that I, I was surprised to hear this from told me they're they're sick of the, the Democrats and their policies, their failed mm-hmm. policies, and they're going to vote Republican. Actually, they said to me that, Things seem a whole lot better under Trump. We didn't have these high gas prices and and the the, the you know the supermarket with hardly any you know food on the shelves and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. They're coming to a, a a realization that this is not the America that they remember you know growing up in. Something's different about this and this COVID thing that that's hanging over us. And it doesn't seem to be going away because every every couple of months there's a new variant coming out. They're tired of that too. Now a lot of them have bought into it um, because of the fear tactics that's being used to keep these people um, in check as far as wearing a mask and this and that and the other. But there are some a lot of blacks who are refusing to even take the shot, and that's because of the history of the United States government in the black community and everybody's aware of the Tuskegee experiments. And right. there's a lot more, there's a lot of other, mm-hmm. other um, programs that the government use against blacks and, and uh, to their, to the detriment of their health that, you know, they mm-hmm. weren't aware of and gave no consent, you know, to the government to do. Mm-hmm. So they're not taking mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. I think there's some positive, um, positivity coming out of all of this and that is the awakening of some of the American people to what is going on because they don't even like what they see from their own party those who vote and support Democrats that's my views on that Mm -hmm. 
I wonder about that political aspect of it. There are black Republicans uh, in Chicago as well, probably not too many, but they're out there. And um, there's even a, a black Republican candidate for governor who so far seems to have been ignored by the media. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot, yeah. A lot of people ignored. would say, yeah, well, that may change. But a lot of people would say more broadly that, okay, yes, we know there have always been black conservatives and black Republicans but it's going to be a tiny minority and you'll never make real inroads, you know, win an election uh, in a city for mayor or city council or prosecutor or anything like that. Not a conservative black, just not going to happen. Too many black people won't vote for them and hardly any of the whites will. Uh, Latinos, who knows? But what would you say to that, that perspective on the, the political power or lack thereof? of black conservatives in cities. It seems like they just don't have the juice yet. I would say to that, you know, that's that's something they would like for blacks to um to to believe in that there's no no chance for a black black Republican. I look at mm-hmm. I look at North Carolina, have a uh, Democrat governor but they have a Republican um, um, lieutenant governor, and his name is is Mark. I think it's Mark um, Jackson, and he he has had no experience in politics before. He he made you know his 15 minutes of fame when he came out against um, the assault on our our First and Second Amendment rights. And that that propelled him into the spotlight, and and so much that in a democratic state, he became lieutenant mm-hmm. governor. So there's a lot I of heard, a lot of re- black Republicans are coming out of the closet. They're being more mm-hmm. outspoken, and and I've always been. I'm I'm an author. I have um, about five five books on um, political books on the subject of the. Um, mm-hmm the special historical bond between the black community and the Republican party. So I've been educating mm-hmm. people for the last almost eight to 10 years. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's really um, reaching them. Uh, of course, you've got a lot of blacks in the Democrat areas that will not say they are going to re, you know, vote Republican, but they, they will mm-hmm. once they get in that booth. Cause okay. they don't mm-hmm. want to be ostracized. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's Annie. Right. Yeah, my my internet crashed, so I am now on my mm. cell phone. So I'm sorry about the quality of this call, but the whole thing came crashing down on me. I've got three computers up and not one is working. <laughs> oh my Thank God. you. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, hey. anyway, Matt, you are the author of the book "What Next Chicago: Notes of a Pissed Off Native Son," and. Uh, Someone say hello over there. <laughs> anyway, I know. Sorry about that. I'm moving away from that sound. <laughs> oh man! But you know, I was listening to you and Curtis until finally Curtis brought me in. But what you're seeing is, is a rise of people, and there's a study that was just done recently that a lot of blacks and Hispanics are starting to revolve towards independent or Republican uh, conservative views because of what they're seeing mm-hmm. going on around. You know, this lawlessness uh, and the un, 
mitigate violation of our borders um, is just saying this is not the America that our family we have fought for. Mm-hmm. Well, I agree, and I'm I'm tracking very closely how that's going to play out in Chicago. I'm still on the ground here. I've been back here uh, for about three months this year. I obviously came back last year to do field work on my book. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the uh, people I interviewed, a black woman on the south side named Latasha Fields, she's now a candidate for lieutenant governor, along with uh, another individual, uh, a black uh, man who is running for governor. Uh, So, you know, there's things going on. There's meetings happening practically as we speak among black Republicans in Chicago. Um, it's just in some cities like this one, the history, you know, uh, is is so deep. And, you know, people really, most people really can't bring themselves to vote for a Republican. And so at times I have wondered, you know, if the party label is that important, right? Uh, what if you had uh, an independent party, say a Chicago reform party, or what about, don't laugh at me here, what about centrist, sensible Democrats? They exist. <laughs> One just got elected mayor mayor of New York, and I think he's the real thing. We'll have to see. Eric Adams, of course. So, yes. you know. I, I personally, and I hear you, I would like to see a two-party system, and I hate the idea that the left keeps advancing, that anyone who is a Republican is, you know, inherently, uh, you know, a bigot. Anyone who voted for Trump is a bigot and an awful person. That is a very uh, Leninist, socialist approach. It's to vilify the opponent as a bad person. That never stops. That goes on here. But I'm aware of that, but all the same, I don't care what letter is next to your name. It could be an R or an I or an I for independent or a D for Democrat if you're going to do the right thing, and then you actually do. Just throwing yeah. that out there. Well, the, the problem I have with that is the fact that, first of all, the the bigots and, and the racists, that's, that's the history of the Democrat Party as far as uh, the black community is concerned. They're the ones that, you know, supported that institution and had as their militant wing, the KKK. Now, sure, I would like to um, have a two-party system, too. But it's always been uh, where you have the Democrats that have one nation view of America, and most of it is negative. And I'm talking about the leadership, because not all Democrats are, are like that. A lot of Democrats are patriots. But I don't think they understand who's running their party. And that 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 tends to to lean towards socialist types and whatnot. And then you have the Republican Party. Even though our leadership, you know, we are not happy with them. We call them rhinos because they're they're in league, you know, with the you know the the fellow um, colleagues across the aisle. The thing is, this you know, they're the establishment. They don't really care about the principles this country was founded on. So it is the core. Um, um, Republican or conservative um, individual who is the only you know group of people who's kind of like standing in the way of those on the left, and that's that's why I support them. It's always been 
the core conservatives and Republicans who are, are fighting these changes that are trying to be implemented in this country. And um, I would say, you know, in the election of 2020, Trump was told that all he needed was 70, I think, 73 million votes, and he would have a lock on the election. The guy got 10, 10 million more than that. So that tells me that a lot of people are waking up, plus there's more conservatives in this country than the, the press and everybody else is um, letting out. Everybody thinks the majority is the left, but that's not true. And had there not been a lot of shenanigans in that election, Trump would be president now. Well, Matt, at one point we had the blue dog Democrats. You had Democrats like John Kennedy that today, in today's day and age, would be considered a Republican. Yes, Senator yep. the Rose Republican, but still a Republican for the policies. And I think that when people vote Democrat traditionally, they're thinking the past. They're not realizing how the party has morphed and how they have aligned themselves with the ACLU that's pushing policies such as Proposition 47 out in California. They're pushing this nationwide to push down felony penalties and cut bail, which makes revolving door justice, which means, hey, listen, it doesn't matter if I do a smash and grab. I'll be booked. I'll be released, and I can come back and do it again tomorrow. Hmm. That's going on everywhere now, and uh, people on parole are an emerging class of alleged murderers, too. I've seen three cases in the last few weeks, one in L.A., one in Chicago, and one in New York, where people have been killed. And in each case, the man arrested was someone on, quote, supervised parole. And, uh, you know, I just have to wonder, though, how... Um, how do people who want to want to make change back to you know a society where crime entails punishment, where the schools work, where city finances are in order, and where the public dialogue is not poisoned by you know claims of racism every time someone disagrees with you? How do we get back to that? And I wonder if you don't have to have a policy playbook fairly detailed, not too detailed, but really a map, a plan. Here's what we need to do in this city, and here's how we'll do it. Um, I understand, you know, the talk and the concern about parties and there being a strong cadre of black Republicans. I get that. It's important. But I think you've got to have a battle plan, something to motivate people, because we have dismal voter turnout in a lot of our cities, and I think a lot of that is happening because minorities don't come to the polls as much as they might. They think it doesn't matter who you elect. Nothing changes for the better. It's almost like policy failure is the political success strategy of the uh, progressives in charge of our big cities because they're always going to have the public employee union members come out to vote for them. But in Chicago, well, we have our city elections in odd-numbered years, and that really dampens the turnout, I think. Well, you know, I what my ahead. suggestion has always been find something that you both agree upon. Find that middle, that middle issue. For example, we recently defeated uh, two uh, referendums here just this past election, one to raise taxes and the other one to change our form of government. And 
Mm. When I started to coach, put my part of the argument in, I tried to think both sides of the aisle. What would attract both sides? And I took out half-page ads in all the major newspapers. And we just sadly mm. defeated it because I, I thought, like, all right, how is this going to hurt the poorest in our community? How will this affect the everyday person in the community? Don't think along politics, but think along what would be best to move this community forward and to help preserve the community. And it was, I mean, we trounced them. Like 72 and 79% of the voters voted against both referendums. If you know how to coach the argument. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's always been my suggestion. Find something that you can both agree upon. I mean, I saw a friend of mine yelling at the TV uh, at something that was going on. I looked at him and I said, you know what? That's something we both can agree upon. You know, we have a lot more in common than people understand. And they don't want us to work together because then that makes us a very powerful voting bloc. Because then you have no way of knowing which way we're going to vote. But then Mm -hmm. again, when you have people who want um, closed borders because um, we can't just let anybody in the country, no more than anybody can just let people run into their houses. And you got right. some who want open borders. It's going to be hard to find a medium there. And the, the same thing with um, fuel. Um, the yeah, left is pushing uh, energy yeah. efficient cars and and yeah. all that other stuff. And, and they, they stop the gas pipe, you know, pipes. They shut them down. But then you got the other party who wants them open to be independent. But then you've got two opposing strategies. No, actually, no, you can actually unite people on that. Because when you have people coming across the border carrying all these illnesses and then going into schools where your children are spreading these illnesses to your child, such as leprosy, tuberculosis, measles, things that we have eradicated for decades ago. Now your child's going to be exposed to these things. Do you want that? Now what's going to happen to your tax dollar because you have people coming in that have, we have to supply them clothing, uh, medication, housing, uh, education, uh, Section 8. You think about it, all your tax dollars going to support that one individual. What are you getting out of it? How is that benefiting you personally? It's not. It's going to increase your taxes. Now you've got your child exposed to diseases or even yourself. You have your money just flying out of the pocket because some politician says we have to do this. I mean, do you leave your doors unlocked to let anyone come in and take what they want? This is what's happening here. You come see, to that's educating people, and that's what we do, educate people. Right. But the problem is with our leadership. These are the folks that make the laws. They're not, they're not at the same um, um, level of thinking you know, when it comes to things like this, they have their, their minds preset like the AO, um, C's or whatever. They, they, they have an agenda and that's what they're pushing. But we, we have our next guest about ready to come on. So we well, want to thank Matt, you, Matt. Matt, I want to thank you. Where can people find you in your book? If they go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble online and just enter What Next Chicago, you'll find it. They can also go to my website, chicagoschooled.com, and that's schooled with a K in it, chicagoschooled.com. Oh, okay. That's well, Matt, 
we welcome you back, and I'm sorry about my technical difficulties and the poor quality of my connection right now, because like I said, I'm on myself, and I'm going to be having an argument with Xfinity as soon as I get off. <laughs> All right. Hey, it was good talking to both of you. Thanks for having me oh, on. Oh, yeah. Uh, God oh, bless you, sir. And stay safe. Take care. Bye bye. All right. Matt Rosenberg, you can find his book on Amazon, What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed Off Native Son. Uh, Curtis, you do, do you have Justin with us now? Sure do. Well, welcome aboard Justin Olson, who's running for the Senate out of Arizona against Mark Kelly. Justin, I have to apologize. My internet crashed in the first hour of the show, so I'm I've got nothing but my cell phone right now. So bear with no me. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, now you're running for the Senate. What prompted you to uh, go after this hero, Mark Kelly? Yeah, no. The reason I'm running for the United States Senate is because we need a United States senator that represents Arizona values, and Mark Kelly doesn't. You know, he's voted to allow critical race theory to be taught in our schools. I mean, this is something that's offensive to Martin Luther King's dream that we should be looking on the content of one's character, not focusing on the color of one's skin. He voted to allow taxpayer funding for abortions. I mean, these are views that are extreme. They're out of step with the mainstream of the American public, and they're not consistent with Arizona values. And that's why I'm running to have it. A, a, a conservative lawyer representing Arizona and the United States Senate, someone who's going to fight unwaveringly for fiscal responsibility, for election integrity, for secure borders, for the right to life, and the Second Amendment. You know, you just said a mouthful, but uh, you said that uh, you were pro-life, and one only has to look at your website, which is vote Justin Olson. That's with an O O L S O N. Uh, dot com. Uh, you've got nine beautiful kids. Oh my goodness! That's right. Yeah, they certainly they certainly are the joy of my life. You know, I told my wife early on that you know I wanted to have a big family, but I said, look, I recognize that you're taking on a significant portion of the burden and and raising the children and rearing them and and certainly all of the burden and and burying them. And so I said, you know, I'm going to leave the the decision up to you, but I want you to know that I'm supportive. And having as many children as, as you would like uh, for our family to have. And she just took that decision and, and ran with it. Uh, you know, I'm just <laughs> thrilled. Got nine nine young children. The oldest is 18. The, the baby just turned four about uh, five months ago. Oh, geez. God bless. God bless. Now, when you mentioned uh, uh, pro-life, uh, we still have the government funding Planned Parenthood. Every time they pass a budget, there's something with Planned Parenthood in there. And meanwhile, they were busted for selling baby parts. They get untold amount of money from the federal taxpayer uh, to actually commit a genocide. Uh, so how would you go about defunding and deplatforming de Planned Parenthood? We absolutely need to do it. It's as simple as that. We've got to elect representatives and senators to respect the sanctity of life. You know, Planned Parenthood gets 40% of its budget from tax dollars. I mean, this is wrong. We should not be funding this atrocity with our tax dollars. And so when I was in the Arizona State Legislature, I actually introduced a bill to defund Planned Parenthood in Arizona. I said that we should not be spending tax dollars on an organization that, that ends the life of the most vulnerable among us. And I was very honored that that bill was actually signed into law and it was successful we've got to do it at the national level we've got to stop spending tax dollars subsidizing the abortion industry 
And then we've got to continue to champion for the sanctity of life in every aspect. I was so excited to see the Supreme Court ruling with regard to the Texas heartbeat bill. Uh, The pro movement is on the march. Folks support the right, excuse me, my apologies. Folks support the right to life. And that is something that I'm going to continue to champion as a senator representing the state of Arizona. You know, uh, I'm seeing a lot of commercials on TV and a lot of billboards where there are these centers, a lot of them faith-based, popping up, helping support women uh, who end up finding themselves pregnant and trying to decide what to do, where they then give the woman support, help her bring the baby to term, and help her get her education, help her find some place to live, help her get a job or get the skills to get a job, and have a healthy air a platform to raise that child. Would you like to see federal dollars go to help support groups like this? Absolutely, and that's what my bill did in Arizona. Is it said, look, there are services that organizations that provide abortion are providing that are appropriate services, but those services should not be paid for by the tax dollars if it is going to an organization that is performing these abortions. And so we said, look, let's continue to fund these services, but let's fund them from organizations that are not ending the lives of the most innocent among us so that we're not subsidizing the abortion industry. Nobody can disagree that 40% of the funding for Planned Parenthood is a substantial amount of its funding, and it would not be able to commit as many abortions had it not received these tax dollars. So, yes, that's what we should do with those tax dollars is divert them to these organizations that are providing appropriate services to to those that find themselves in a, a situation that uh, is difficult for them to move forward and provide those those solutions to them, that the counseling, the, the uh, many different services that assist women in these situations but not in the ending of the most of the lives of the most vulnerable among us. Now, one of the other things um, you mentioned in your opening statement was securing the border. Now, that's a big thing with Arizona, you know, Texas, California, that whole area. Um, but for some reason, the Biden administration seems to be enticing these illegals to come on over and busing them to the interior of the United States and say, um, well, your court date is this and that, but there's no tracking, no way of knowing whether or not they're bringing diseases in, uh, no way of having a background check on them at all. Um, how would you shut down the, Bi- the Biden administration from doing this? Yeah, we, it's an absolute disaster at the border. And it's been created by the Biden administration and his enablers in Congress, like Mark Kelly, who I'm running against. They repealed the Remain in Mexico policy that was highly effective of the Trump administration that eliminated that draw for folks to come here and say the magic words that they're seeking asylum and then they're released into the interior and they don't even have to show up for their court date because they've already obtained their goal. They got entry into the United States. So the Trump administration said, look, you can apply for asylum, but you've got to do it in in Mexico, in in the the country where you're making that application from. And this was a significant deterrent to illegal immigration. The Biden administration repealed that 
remain in Mexico policy, and it led to this chaos, to this really humanitarian crisis at the border that's dangerous for American communities. I mean, it's enticed folks, like you said, to put themselves in harm's way, but even worse, it's enticed them to put their young children in harm's way. It breaks my heart to see these young infants being dropped over the border wall and then abandoned by smugglers. But this is the natural result of these benefit of these uh, policies that reward illegal immigration. And it's cruel. It's absolutely cruel. We should not have in place these policies that are enticing folks to put themselves in harm's way. Not only did he repeal the Remain in Mexico policy, he stopped the construction of the border wall. We need to reverse these policies. We need to put back in place the Remain in Mexico policy, finish the wall. We need to properly fund the border patrol. We need a universal e-verify requirement and sanctions for those that don't comply. All right. Well, you said you have a a multi-part plan. Uh, What is that? Yeah, absolutely. We, we've got to enact those policies that I mentioned, you know, putting in place the Remain in Mexico policy. We need to, to finish the wall. We need to have a universal E-Verify requirement, which we enacted here in Arizona. It was tremendously successful. Folks that have a business are, got, are not going to risk losing their business license by hiring someone that does not have legal status. And this doesn't cost the country anything. We just put in place a mandatory requirement that all employers check the immigration status of employees with the verify system that's already available and in place. But like I said, this, these policies, these failed policies of the Biden administration are creating chaos at the border. And it's, it's not only harmful to, to those who are putting themselves in harm's way, it's harmful to American communities. You know, this has created cover for the drug cartels. And what we've seen is that the drug cartels are being even more bold and brazen in the trafficking of these illegal substances. Criminal non-citizen arrests by the Border Patrol are up 341% this year alone. Cocaine seized at the border is up 68% and fentanyl, it's up 134%. These are dangerous drugs that are killing Americans. And the cartels are able to take advantage of the chaos that's happening at the border to get more of these substances into our communities that are killing Americans. We've got to change course. We've got to secure our border, and we've got to finish the wall. We've got to put in place these policies that deter illegal immigration. Well, what about those that are overstaying the visa? Because, you know, every single state is a border state because every state has an international airport or some sort of a harbor port where they come over on the visa and they overstay and disappear into the fabric. What happens with those people? Absolutely, and that's why we've got to have interior enforcement as well. We've got to enforce our laws. The laws are are there. They're in place. If there are folks that don't like the laws, they need to change the laws. They can't ignore them. And if we have proper interior enforcement, then that will address those who are overstaying their visas as well. And that's where the E-Verify requirement comes in because that's who's overstaying their visas are the folks that that come here and they want to stay to work and they obtain employment and then overstay their visas. And so if we require our employers to check the immigration status with E-Verify and put in place some meaningful sanctions for those that don't comply, then we eliminate that draw for folks to come across the border illegally to overstay their visas in order to work in the United States then the only illegal immigration traffic that we will have is that criminal element of the cartels who are trafficking and 
humans and, and drugs and contraband, and it will be easier for the Border Patrol to put an end to that trafficking because it's not overshadowed by the thousands of individuals who are coming here daily. You know, I was just on the border with Pinell County Sheriff Mark Lamb just two days ago, and he was telling me that there are on average 5,000 immigrants who are coming across the border daily seeking asylum. I mean, this is just overwhelming law enforcement. It's overwhelming the Border Patrol. They can't keep up. We've got to put a stop to it. Uh, what it's costing our society is people don't even understand how much it is actually costing us in tax dollars uh, in our society. You know, not only just housing these illegal immigrants and trying to match the children up with the proper parent, not even imagining those costs, but the cost to us now for law enforcement dealing with these overdoses, the medical society, the hospitalizations, the deaths what it's actually costing us in full tax dollars, it's stunning, absolutely stunning. And talking about tax dollars, uh, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer made an agreement to enable the uh, debt ceiling to be raised. And that is going to really hit your children and grandchildren more than anything in the world. How would you rein this in and then finally get an official balanced budget amendment, uh, bring the debt ceiling back down into, you know, at least affordable range, what would you do to fight these? Yeah, those are great, great questions. And we've got a $28 trillion national debt. I mean, this is a, an absolute crisis that we're passing on to our, our children and our grandchildren, you know, and that's not the country that I want to be passing on to our kids. You know, I want to be passing on a country that's strong and that's free and that's vibrant and that has the hope of prosperity for generations to come. And what we need to do is pass, like you said, the balanced budget amendment. And even before that, you know, the first bill that I'll enact when I get to the United States Senate is a bill that says, look, if the Congress does not pass a balanced budget in a year, then the Congress should not be paid. We send our representatives and senators back there to do a job, to be proper stewards of our tax dollars. And if they can't do that job, well, then they should not collect a paycheck. Now, that's step one. But in addition, we've got to just stop the reckless spending or we're going to bankrupt our children's future. And we're already seeing the impacts of it. We're seeing runaway inflation. You know, the Wall Street Journal reported today that inflation is at a 39-year high. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's evaporating our earnings and our savings and our retirement. Gas is up 58.1% above last year. Meat and eggs are up nearly 30%. This is something that is harming the pocketbooks of hardworking Americans, making it more difficult for us to put food on the table, to be able to provide for our families. We've got to change course. We've got to enact fiscal responsibility, low taxes, and policies that promote economic growth. That's what I did in the United States in the Arizona State Legislature, and that's what I'll fight for in the United States Senate. Well, I proposed this a couple of years back uh, to my own uh, senator and uh, representative, and it kind of like went over like a lead balloon. But at one point, the Senate, the senators were elected by the state legislatures. We had a constitutional amendment that now make it, you know, now everyone votes and it becomes a national election as it is with yours right now where, you know, you have to reach out to everyone. But what if we turned around and instead of being paid through the federal government when you get into office, 
have the senators and legislators that are elected by that state to Congress be paid by that state's Congress, no longer by the federal government, where you cannot any longer control your own paycheck, vote for your own paycheck. The state legislators determine your benefits and pay. I think that's a great idea. You know, like you mentioned, the original formula of the founding fathers that they put into the Constitution had much more of the autonomy and the sovereignty shared with the state rather than the federal government. And the amendments to the Constitution that changed and led to the popular election of of senators really did shift that balance of power towards the federal government. The senators no longer have to look to their state government for uh, their uh, re-election. And so they don't answer to the states. And so the states don't have as much influence on the federal government. And so certainly I think what, what you've mentioned is a great idea. It's something that would put some power back to the people of the state government to say, look, you know, we should not be spending as much on the salaries of our elected officials if you're not representing the interests of the state and of the people. Well, now talking about elections, moving right into that one, election integrity. And everyone's throwing around that term, you know, like popcorn. But now our founding fathers intended elections to be controlled by the states, not by the federal government. And you've got those in federal government that seem to feel that the federal government should determine how the election should be done when it was originally states' rights. But there is an alternative. What if the federal government finds the contractors or a set of contractors and say, all right, fine, these machines cannot be controlled by modems, cannot be tampered with, whatever. We've already had our people go over them, and each state can pick through a set of these machines so that the votes can be uh, verified. Like, for example, here in South Carolina, it's a two-part system. You go to one machine, you punch in your request, you know, who you're voting for. It punches out a paper ballot that you can actually physically look at and say, yes, these are all the things I voted for. All right, I agree with that. Then you go to a second machine, which scans in that paper ballot. So you've got electronic of your vote, and you've got an actual physical paper of your vote. And here we do is 10% of each precinct, we check those machines to make sure the numbers match, something like that. Absolutely. I think we need that paper trail. We need to be able to audit these election systems. And most importantly, we need universal voter ID requirements for all ballots that are cast. You know, we have a requirement here in Arizona that our state legislatures put into place that requires folks that show up at polling places to show their ID. And this makes sense, and it's overwhelmingly supported by the American people. But we don't have a requirement for voter ID for national-only elections. And that's because the federal government is telling us that that we cannot put in place that voter ID requirement. So that's absolutely absurd. And that's something that I'll champion at the federal level is that we do have that voter ID requirement, and we allow the states to put that in place. This is something that protects our elections. It makes it easy to vote and hard to cheat. We've got to know that every ballot that's cast is cast by a legitimate voter so that we can have confidence in the outcome of the elections. 
Well, what do you do with something like New York City that just passed the law that allows um, legal um, alien residents to now vote in their local elections? What is what is to prevent them from taking that voter ID and showing up at a federal election and then voting and influencing our vote? Wasn't our founding fathers saying that we should not have any foreign influence in our elections? Is that now allowing foreign influence into our elections? Absolutely. I think it's unconstitutional for someone who's not a citizen to be able to cast a ballot. And so we've got to defend the Constitution. You know, another thing that I think that we should advocate for is a ban on, on ballot harvesting. You know, as states more and more adopt widespread mail-in ballots, it's easier and easier for folks to go around and collect these ballots and then drop them off at the polling places. And that's what we've seen happen here in Arizona. And so when I was in the state legislature, I voted to ban ballot harvesting because it leads to a concern about who's actually casting the ballot. Was it actually filled out by the voter or did somebody collect that ballot and fraudulently vote that ballot and then drop it off at the polling place. And what we saw in 2018 was that folks actually dropped off crates full of ballots that they had harvested, and that's wrong. That decreases the confidence in the election. And so we voted to ban ballot harvesting. That's what we should continue to do, and we need appropriate and effective enforcement mechanisms to stop that practice from happening. Well, we were talking about foreign influence, so I'll go even a step further, where a lot of these machines, our voting machines, were made overseas. And now we're getting reports that some of these countries, China, um, have had, we're telling people how they could manipulate the vote without the Americans knowing. So what about the machines made in America only with American technology and American programming? Yeah, and that's precisely why we need that paper ballot to, to be able to audit the vote to, to ensure that there was no tampering with the vote count from the voting machines. It's absolutely critical. And then we've got to have that verification that each of those paper ballots that were cast were in fact cast by legitimate voters. If we accomplish those simple common sense reforms, then everybody can have confidence in the outcome of the election. Well, I'm seeing that we're running out on the clock, and there's so much more to talk about, uh, but it's up on your website. People can then take a look at it. Um, But just recently, um, believe it or not, I couldn't believe I was hearing this. I I flipped out. Uh, Republican Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker uh, was being interviewed on Fox News by Neil Cavuto recently, and I don't know if you saw that interview. Um, He was talking about uh, Russia engagement over Ukraine and whether or not U.S. should engage. And he said, and I'll quote, I would not rule out military action. I think we start making a mistake when we take options off the table. So I would hope the president keeps that option on the table. Uh, He was talking about that we stand off with our ships in the Black Sea and we rain destruction on Russian military capability. He's talking about nuclear warfare. What business do we have in the Ukraine actively? Shouldn't we then just supply them with the military material, you know, the missiles, the firearms, whatever, but not boots on the ground and not nuclear? I mean, we don't have anything really at stake in the Ukraine even though they may be an ally, 
we had more at stake with Afghanistan, uh, especially when they're pushing for electric vehicles and what does Afghanistan have an abundance of? Rare earth materials. Now, who is inside Afghanistan collecting and mining that rare earth material? China. You know, we lost an important asset with Afghanistan, but what do we have at risk with Ukraine? And is that worth a nuclear war? Right. No, you you raise a a great point, and that is that all of our foreign engagements, whether it's our foreign policy on a diplomatic effort, whether it's uh, the decisions about whether to engage um, the military, need to come from the perspective of what is in America's interest. We need to take an America first approach and ensure that any engagement that we have abroad is solely supporting the American interest. We've got to make sure that we're protecting Americans, keeping our country safe and, and prosperous, And at times that does require strength abroad, but it is not appropriate for us to engage in needless, endless wars that cost American lives and resources just to engage in nation building. We've got to ensure that what we're doing is something that is advancing American interests. Well, Curtis, do you have any last second uh, questions? Oh, did I lose Curtis? Did I lose Curtis? Oh my goodness, we're, we're having a, a million and one possibilities that could go wrong. They're all going wrong right here now, Justin. You still with me? Yeah, I'm still with you. That's uh, I'm sure the the nature of live radio, right? Always always keeps you on your toes. Yeah, I mean my internet is still down. It's not coming back up, and I'm gonna have to <laughs> rip. Xfinity, a brand new one when I get off of here. <laughs> oh, man. Is there anything I should have asked that, you know, you feel the audience should know? Uh, how about big tech? Yeah, you know, big tech. You know, I, I think that we've got to take on big tech. We've got to protect our constitutional rights, the freedom of speech, and, and all of our rights, the freedom of religion, and, and so on and so forth. But you know, what, what I think is most important is that in this race, I'm the proven conservative, the only candidate in this race with a proven conservative record. In the state legislature, I cut taxes, I defunded Planned Parenthood, defunded Obamacare, earned an A rating from the National Rifle Association. There's no other candidate in this race with that proven conservative record. And with the support of your audience, we can be successful in beating Mark Kelly and winning back Republican control of the Senate and creating a stronger defense against the radical left's desire to overtake our country. And we can get back to the constitutional principles that made our country great. Well, you know, everyone talks about reigning in big tech, but how do you handle something like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of these, you know, uh, left-leaning technique companies, you know, from preventing – how do you stop them from preventing the – conservative voice um how do you how do we craft a law that says that if you are a public platform like that you are then going to be treated like regular media uh allowing all voices to be heard or how how do you do that yeah you know it's a great question and i think that we've already got the laws in place we just need to use them the law already says that if they are curating content then they are a publisher and they're liable for what's published on their platform. Now, they claim that they're not curating content, that they are a platform 
that's like a bulletin board and anybody can post anything on the platform. Well, we know that that's not the case. We know that they are, in fact, throttling conservative voices. They're burying conservative stories. Just look at the story about Hunter Biden's laptop. And this is evidence that they are, in fact, a publisher and that they are, in fact, liable for what's being published on their platforms. And if we enforce those laws, then we can ensure that they are, in fact, being a space that is open to conservative voices and that they're not limiting the free speech that's taking place on their platforms. Well, I don't know what happened to my co-host, and he's the one with Internet access, so I I have no idea whether that the next guest is in on the queue or not, so we can keep on going if there's you know subjects here that you'd like to cover that uh, I haven't because at this point I'm, I'm in the dark here. <laughs> I'm back on. Can you hear me? Oh, we got you now, Curtis. Oof. I was freaking yeah, I out. I don't here. know what happened. Oh, no, man. Oh, the guest hasn't called in yet. Oh, okay. All right. Did you have any questions for our guest, for Justin Olson? Um, only, only this, and and that is, there are a lot of. I hate to use the term politicians, who go to Washington. And after a couple of years, they seem to be uh, seduced by the trappings of, um, you know, what goes on there. And it's almost like it becomes a disconnect between them and what goes on there at the party level and the people who sent them there. Um, what, what can you do to, to ensure that you, you, you know, you will remain true to um, your constituency, the people who put you there, and um, stay true to the values and traditions and everything else they, they want you to, re- you know, represent while you're there. Absolutely. That's such a great and, and important question. You know, and I think that it highlights what is unique about my candidacy, and, and that is that the folks don't have to take my word for it, that I'm going to be a conservative like everyone else in this primary, because they can look to what I've done in the public sphere. You know, I've been taking on the establishment. You know, I ran legislation that that cut income taxes, that decreased the size and the scope of the government, eliminated wasteful spending, and fought against the entrenched special interests. That's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. In addition to my public service, I just recently resigned as the CFO for Turning Point USA. For anyone in your audience that's not familiar with Turning Point USA, it's the leading conservative organization that's championing fiscal responsibility. It's teaching the rising generations about about free markets and capitalism. And that's what I've been engaging in. I've been in the trenches doing the, the good work of teaching the rising generation about these principles that made our country great. And so folks can look to who I am, and that's who I'm going to be as I represent Arizona in the United States Senate, a champion for our Constitution, a champion for limited government, a champion for fiscal responsibility, low taxes, the right to life, and the Second Amendment. All right. Curtis? Did I lose Curtis? Well, <laughs> yeah. And and that's what you know. That's what I'm looking for, and you know, as a response, and you know, from what those uh, who would send you to D.C. 
you know, that's what they're looking for. Because, like I said, um, at the advent of the Tea Party movement back in 2010, oh, man, we were sending people to Washington left and right, and um, we had candidates who promised us the world. And then once they got there, you know, after a year or two, they no longer seem to um, remember the campaign promises they made. So your your response has, has the reinsurance of um, what the people uh, would like to hear. Those yeah, you're absolutely right. Put you in office, so that's a good thing. Because, I mean, the founding fathers, they've always said that in order to keep this republic, we have to send people to Washington who are virtuous. And we don't have a lot of virtue in D.C. It's, it's the reason why it's called a swamp. <laughs> and exactly. it's the reason why they can do all these things and come out with all these policies that are unconstitutional to begin with. I mean, we're talking about people who run for office and they take an oath to defend and and, and preserve this uh, you know, constitution. And then they go about doing everything they can to weaken it, diminish it, and some outright to destroy it. And there's no consequences for that. And um, that is why I think, you know, we need more Republicans or conservatives in office who have a backbone and not be like the John Boehner's and, and everybody else we have up there, you know. No, you're absolutely right. And we know that all too well here in Arizona. One of our Mitch former... Mitch <laughs> Yeah, one of our former representatives, actually a Republican, uh, actually announced uh, during this last election that he was voting for Biden. You know, it was just so, so frustrating. So Arizonans have been let down so many times by folks who run as conservatives and then they don't act as conservatives when they get there. And, you know, and that's what I promise to my constituents is that, you know, my love for the Constitution runs deep. That's what motivates me to serve is to be a voice for standing up for constitutional principles for limited government. Mm -hmm. I'm not going back to Washington, D.C. to make friends. I'm going back there to champion our founding formula. Right. And I think that that was the, um, the, um, the, the attraction of a a Trump, Donald Trump, because he was a fighter and we weren't used to having a fighter on our side. And I know he talked out of line sometimes, but he was still doing it on our behalf. And and then I mean he was being he was being attacked every day almost. So I mean most people would have fold under pressure like that, but he continued to fight. And and all we all we're looking for is more people to go up there and fight, and not so much to get along like it's some kind of social club. And we we just want you know the America that we remember growing up in, you know, for the most exactly. part, you know, I mean, we had problems and things, but we all always um, overcame these problems without this mindset that we have to fundamentally change America. There's nothing wrong with America. Right. It's the people who are running it. Exactly. So that's my feel. Um, I mean, Obama, Obama was very clear that he wanted to fundamentally reshape America and he, he he's working his hardest and Biden's following in his footsteps to, shape it into something that, that we don't recognize. It's not consistent with our founding. You know, it reminds me of what uh, Daniel Webster said you know, in the 1800s, and he said, 
and hold on, my friends, to the Constitution and to the Republic for which it stands, for miracles do not cluster. That which has happened once in 6,000 years might not happen again, so hold on to the Constitution. For should the United States Constitution fail, there will be tyranny throughout the land. You know, that's what's motivated me to run for office. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at the Constitution, I think, you know, as long as it is in jeopardy, you know, and it is, make no mistake about it right now, we are on, on the brink. You know, the, the left no longer even hides the fact that they want to create socialism. You know, that's what they're that's striving right. to do. And, you know, and some things are worth pre- preserving and protecting, like America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. So as long as her liberties are in jeopardy, that. that's, that, that's what I'm going to be fighting for is protecting our Constitution. Well, you know, yeah, Bernie Sanders and AOCs, they don't care about freedom for people. No, right. what, what they care about is destroying the First Amendment, which has five mm-hmm. rights in it. Very few people can name all five in there. Or the Second right. Amendment and the Second Amendment, which defends the First Amendment. If they take away the Second Amendment, then the First Amendment is gone. And you're 100% right, because now we have safe spaces where you can't say certain words. Or if you display the American flag, oh, it, you're a racist. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's triggering me. I need my safe space. You know, they're doing anything and everything to take away our freedom of speech. And then they're going after our right to protest. Look at what's going on with the January 6th uh, crowd. They've been behind bars. What? Where is it? Where are their rights? Their constitutional rights. Where are they? We're for a speedy trial. This is absolutely. eleven months. No, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's precisely what Ronald Reagan warned us about. You remember when he talked about freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. So this is exactly what's happening right now. We're seeing this 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 warning play out in front of our eyes. Uh, the radical left has taken over Washington, D.C. The Democrats in Washington are cowering to the woke mob. And we've got to save our country. We've got to stand up and we've got to defend our Constitution. We've got to defend the freedoms that made our country great. And, and in fact, there are freedoms that have protected and benefited individuals all across the world because those freedoms have been exported and been adopted in other countries' constitutions. And we've got something special here. We've got to make sure that we do everything in our power to pass this constitution, this freedom-loving country, on to our kids and grandkids with the light of liberty still burning brightly. Well, Justin, there's, there was one other idea that we had floated be- before our elected officials a number of years back, that whenever a bill comes before you, each part of that bill, you must state what of the enumerated powers in the Constitution authorizes you to do what it is that you've done in that bill. For example, this new debt, raising the debt ceiling bill, there is so much in there that is not the powers of the legislature much less of the Senate. It's not a congressional power, a lot of these things in there. Would you like to see the Senate have like a line-eyed veto ability before it goes to the president and cross out these things inside a bill that's not one of the enumerated powers? Absolutely. You know, you hit on another one of the uh, several bills that I tell constituents that I plan to 
uh, introduce uh, immediately upon arriving at the United States Senate, I'm going to introduce a bill that says that any action of the federal government that is not consistent with the enumerated powers of the Constitution is no longer allowed. You know, we've got to stick to the Constitution. You know, this is what made our country great, and we've gone so far away from the limited government that was anticipated under the Constitution. We need to get back to that, that, those principles. You know, I could share with you just a few of the other bills that I plan on introducing when I get to Congress. One of the first bills I'd like to introduce is a bill to abolish the IRS. You know, the IRS is this, <laughs> this behemoth. It wields way too much power, and we should get oh, yeah. the federal government out of every aspect of our lives. So I look forward to introducing that bill among one of the several of the, the first bills that I introduce in Congress. Well, I'd like to see brought back the bill for the fair tax. I mean, that way each and every oh, tax yeah. has a choice of how much tax you pay to the government by de- determining what you purchase. Instead of buying that $2,000 TV, you buy the $200 TV. It works just as well, but you're also giving the government less tax. Allow the exactly. I, like going back to a, I like going back to a consumption tax only, as we had back in the earlier part of this country, where you just pay taxes on what you buy. That's what a fair exactly. tax is. Not what right. you earn. Right, yes. and that's one of the approaches, one of the proposals that will eliminate the IRS. You know, the IRS should not be asking us everything about our lives, and that's what personal we have stuff. right now. Yeah, personal stuff. How we much need you to got get your the, bank the down to $600 now? Right, exactly. But I think that the fair tax, we could also go with a, a flat tax that you – file on a postcard. You know, there are a number of different ways that it can be accomplished, but the but the key is that we've got to get rid of the this overwhelming bureaucracy that's destroying lives and, and just too involved and too engaged in every aspect of our lives. You know, another bill that I look forward to introducing, I mentioned the election integrity, making sure that we have voter ID requirements for all ballots that are cast. I mentioned my plan for securing the border uh, by finishing the wall and by requiring E-Verify, properly, border, uh, properly funding the, the Border Patrol. Another bill that I'll introduce is a bill that, that represents the, or that respects the sanctity of life by adopting the heartbeat bill. I think that we should uh, imitate what these great champions and defenders of life in Texas have done and respect the sanctity of life. Yeah, we, we passed the heartbeat bill here. McMaster signed it, uh, I believe it was last month. Yeah, last month uh, it was. So that we have here. Um, we're not quite constitutional carry. We do now have the open carry. So there are advances being made in a lot of the red states. Um, but this is one thing that has bothered me. We still have the bottleneck of shipments off of Los Angeles uh, and, uh, oh, oh, good Lord, uh, I forgot the other port now, just a brain fart, as well as outside of New York. I mean, the unions are doing it, but Gavin with this stupid truck has to be less than 10 years old and blah, 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 blah. So interstate trucking is impossible with the state of California. Why are not the interstate laws being enforced on the state of California saying, wait a minute, you know, we have control over interstate commerce and you're preventing that from happening? 
why isn't anyone stepping on the neck of Gavin Newsom to have him open up the state of California to our truckers and get the shipments out to the rest of the United States? Right. No, I think you're you're absolutely right. And, and not only that, but the federal government has actually made the problem worse. You know, from the policies that they've adopted that have encouraged folks to not show up to work because folks are being paid more to stay home than to go work at the shipping plants or in the manufacturing plants and the packing industry. And so, you know, every time the government gets involved, the problem goes from bad to worse. You know, it's like that old adage that, uh, you know, the, the folks show up and they say, well, we're from the government and we're here to help. You know, that's something that should strike fear into the, the hearts of anyone who hears it. You know, and so we've got to just get the government out of the way. The government's causing the problem and creating this supply chain crisis. We've got to allow the free market to flourish. And the free market can resolve itself and eliminate these shortfalls if the government just gets out of the way and allows people to, to do their jobs. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, people can find you. It's vote Justin Olson. It's with an O O L S O N dot com. Um, any closing thoughts? I just thank you so much for having me on today. Like I said, I look forward to representing the state of Arizona. But really, this is the battle for the United States Senate. Arizona is ground zero. You know, Mark Kelly can be beat. We saw in Virginia the results and the results in New Jersey where a Republican nearly won New Jersey. This is going to be a red wave. I can be successful in this race and we can win back Republican control of the Senate, create a stronger defense against the radical left so we can protect our constitution. But I can do it with the help of, of your listeners. So I'd encourage them to log on to votejustinolson.com. They can watch my campaign introduction video there that describes why I feel so passionately about saving our country, and then I'd encourage them to, to maybe make a $5, a $10, $25 contribution so that we can save our country. Well, yeah, you know, you're, you've got a, you, you're going to be primaried. Um, I believe there's, what, four or five of you in there. And uh, one thing I have to admire about you, you have never attacked one of the other Republicans going into the primary. You've gone directly after Kelly, and that shows a special character, sir. I want to thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a, a, a real pleasure, and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, well let me add one thing. As much yeah. as I would love to see the Federal Reserve audited, stay away from that one. Strange things happen to people who, who go there talking about <laughs> auditing the Federal Reserve, okay? No, you're right. Uh, it's, uh, it's scary, the, the power that the establishment has. No, you're absolutely right. Oh, man. Well, Justin, I wish you a lot of luck. And, you know, your family is beautiful. And uh, I wish that – I hope that you do get the seat, sir. Thank you so much. I sure appreciate you having me on. You guys have a great day. You too. All right. Uh, check out uh, uh, .com. Um I guess our other guest, uh, Billy Prempe, is an MIA, uh, but we should be having um, – Oh God, I am Jim from the Heritage. Yeah, Jim Carafano from Heritage joining us uh, shortly, about ten minutes. Uh, so we've got about ten minutes here to kill. But I can't believe. I mean, my internet is deader than a doornail. I cannot believe this. And right now, I'm in the chat room via my cell phone. Thank God I got that and, working. 
<laughs> and you say you have Verizon. Who who do who's your um, no, no, carrier? No, 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 Xfinity, which is now Comcast. Yeah, and I'm wow. going to be on the phone. And this is this is crazy. This is crazy. The, last is. time, last time they were down almost twenty hours. And this wow. is my services because it's supposed to be faster internet and more reliable internet, and I'm finding the exact opposite right now. So this ain't fun. Unless, unless they got hacked or something. Um, I heard some. I think it was um, Apple or somebody like that just a few days ago got hacked. Their systems oh. got hacked into. But you I know, but all the money they make, you they have the best and brightest protecting their um, network. <laughs> yeah, I, I twenty really hours all time. Yeah. So, so far, we've been on the air about uh, two and a half hours, and I was only up for, what, the first 45 minutes? Wow. Yeah, Cicely had just come on. So, no, not, well, I don't know, not even 40, not even 45 minutes. So, Mm. this this is crazy. But I want to thank everyone so, that's still listening in and hanging in there. But, I mean, yeah. both of my computers so, are frozen. What has your your Senator Lindsey Graham been up to lately? He's been kind of quiet. No, he did make some sort of a statement yesterday. I didn't catch the whole thing. Uh, matter of fact, I haven't oh, seen yeah. any, any news whatsoever today yet. Uh, but he made a statement with uh, Biden about Ukraine uh he was not going to support, you know, uh, a military intervention, uh, which I agree with. I mean, we don't have any business being there. You know, uh, who was it? Was it? I think it was Putin in speaking to Biden. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but he's saying, um, you don't want Russian troops on the border telling you how to handle your immigration over there. So you have no business coming here to the Ukraine telling us to handle our business here. Um, so I don't know. Uh, with this this crazy president, Lord knows. And then you have a, a senator so irresponsible as this one from Mississippi, Wicker, uh, making such a statement about using nuclear. I mean, come on. Really? Oh, nuclear? Wow. Yeah. Over what? <laughs> yeah, over what? what? We didn't even what? do that in Vietnam. Yeah, but what what is, the, what is the American interest? That's the question. Yeah. What is the American well, to interest? To kill our young men and women? That's you know that's that's BS. You know they send us over there and expect us to be committed to the mission, and they're not committed to it. You know they'll let a couple of thousand of us get killed before they pull us out. And you, you think like, okay, what did we go over there in the first place for? You don't have an exit strategy or a plan for victory. That's the yeah. only thing I liked about Desert Storm because we we did have, um, you know, a goal, set goals, and, and we met them, and then we got our butts out of there. Yeah. But if you look at how he handled Afghanistan, that is a precursor sure. to what was going on if, if, if he were to get us involved in the Ukraine. So think about that. Is mm-hmm. that kind of scary thought? Leaving people behind enemy lines, especially civilians. Exactly. That's unheard of. And they have not lifted one finger to bring one civilian out. 
not one. This is all being done by private individuals. So yeah, special. Little, I think some of them like retired special forces and groups yeah. and things like that. Yeah. But it's just sad when your country just turns their back on you, like you just collateral. No, it was the and first then they got all those weapons. What ninety-two billion dollars worth of weapons or something? Mm-hmm. Oh, heard of? Wow. Cuba so, could yeah. use that, I guess. <laughs> no, it was, anyway. it was first time that Americans of this number, this magnitude, were left behind. I mean, even with the Vietnam War, the missing in action, and the Korean War missing in action, the government still actively pursued to find out where these people were. And to this to day, this day, to this day, they are still bringing home the remains. No one is left behind. If we can go and get them, we get them one way or another. And that's what presidents have done in the past. But this is the one president ever in our history to blatantly turn his back on not just the military left behind, but civilians, civilians and our mm. allies that are being hunted down. They're being hunted down. Wow. So what do you think about the great exodus of uh, Kamala Harris's staff? <laughs> Every time I turn around, somebody resigning. Yeah, yeah. I, it's a piece of work to work for. That's what I hear. We knew about that long before she got into office. And Lord knows why she was chosen as the vice presidential candidate and why she was supported as vice presidential candidate. I don't know why. But even better than that, did you catch Hillary Clinton reading from her speech, should she have been elected? I mean, I was hysterical. Here she is with these these phony crocodile tears, you know, talking about having this little girl on her lap and telling her that one day she'll have three little daughters and one day her daughter will become president of the United States. And she's crying. And, oh, my goodness. I mean, I and I was hysterical. And then, of course, I was watching Newsmax and they took off on it. Oh, my goodness. And some of the guests they had coming on with the crocodile tears. I mean, mm-hmm. if you have not seen, folks, if you have not seen the video, and I'm sorry, I don't, my internet is still down. If I had the video clip, I would post it so that you could see it. But it, 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 it is a sight to see. She's still to this day, you know, five years later, crying over the fact she did not become president of the United States. So her, her, her staff wants her to look, uh, they told her to cry some more from what I understand, trying to make her seem a little bit more human, a little bit more likable. But, oh, my goodness, it, it, Jesse Samoilet could not act that badly. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I'm telling you, I don't know what's going on in this country. I mean, I don't know who's worse, Hillary or Kamala <laughs> or Kamala. I mean, what's coming out of the left for women power, it's it's absolutely amazing. And for Camilla Harris to be given so many different assignments, and she has not succeeded in a single one. I don't think she's lifted her finger in a single one. What she, mm. has she done? She's traveled all over the world and the nation doing everything else but what she should be doing, her job. And it, it's 
this this is the woman that's a heartbeat away from becoming the next president of the United States when Joe Biden doesn't make it out the door standing up. And see, this this is why I think it's so important that we do have a red wave so we can stop some of you know, some of these policies from becoming law. We do that they pretty much um um just what you call checkmate for the next two two years, the Democrats. But we have to have pretty much a very, very um um successful election um night in order to, you know, stop these these people. Mm-hmm. I mean yeah. we can't really wait till twenty twenty four. It has to begin now. Well what I'm probably going to try to do, if I can get my phone to do this, um, like I said, I'm having, come on, no, 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 no. Uh, just in case uh, James Carafano does not call in time, I'm going to text you his number in case I need you to call him in. Oh, yeah. um, I, I, that's going to come over in a few seconds. So, folks, this is live radio. This is what happens when my Internet goes down and Anne it's a little frazzled. So the phone number should come over to you, and uh, makes. I think I'm missing a number. Yeah, there is a number missing in there. There's a another two between the two and the five. So disregard this one. Yeah, there's another. Yep. Two. Uh, okay. I'll wait for the next one. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that, folks. Um, but anyway, uh, the internet is down and. The only thing Annie has to work with is her cell phone number, and that is how I am right now online. So it came over to you, Curtis. So it did the second one. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I just got it. Yeah. All righty. I okay. will call. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but uh, we're waiting for our next guest to come in, and I had some other stuff here. Uh, I was talking about uh, Ileana Omar. We talked about that one. Yeah, this is this is interesting. Um, everyone knows George Soros has been got has fat hands in everything, uh, but it turns out that there's someone up and coming that may have just as much, if not more, influence uh, in the near future. And this was an article at UAF Report. Uh, by a person named Daniel, but it showed up first in um, Breitbart. And Breitbart has reported, uh, if there's a well-known persona comparable to Lauren Powell Jobs, it's Hungarian billionaire George Soros. So this woman, uh, again, left-leaning, is just uh, as powerful in as a philanthropist, as they call them, as George Soros. Uh, Soros is branded a philanthropist, but he also functions as a one-man piggy bank for globalist far left. Much like Soros, open society foundations, the main vehicle for jobs um, influence is Emerson Collective, known as EC, the philanthropic outfit she founded and leads. The Emerson Collective, according to Forbes, is a hybrid philanthropic and investing limited liability company. Now, that's that's a mouthful. It's a pretty murky description, which appears to allow them to engage in business and charity without ever being terribly explicit about which is which. 
And I'm not sure which of the two categories it falls under, but EC also happens to own the Atlantic. So she has become a secret superpower in her own right. So we've got to look out for this woman, Powell, and Emerson Collective. So we're not just dealing with um, George Soros's Open Society Foundations, but there's several different billionaires, and she is one of them that is rising up to be a powerhouse on these far-left globalist issues. And I would assume that very shortly she will try to influence the upcoming elections. So let's keep an eye out for her in the news. You know, in, throughout our history, there were elite families out there that influenced our politics, like the Rothschilds. Now, did Andy drop out again? Wow. But anyway, our next guest has yet to show up um, from the Heritage Foundation. And we have less than a half hour left in the show. But um, let me see. Um, nope, that's not him. But anyway, as as we all heard throughout the show today, the topic basically is about um, defending this this republic, and and the way we we go about that is to to send responsible conservative leadership um, to Washington and to our state capitals um, in order for us to 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 make changes positive changes in, in the, the, the bills and policies coming out of these places. Um, I believe one of the major areas we need to, to um, bring um, some, some sense back to, um, you know, our people um, is the educational system. These kids are being dumped down with the education that they're being taught and they're not learning about, you know, the real history of this country, they're being lied to. They are being told that we are the problem, especially when it comes to um, the world, you know, our influence in the world. Like, what we, what are we doing over there? We ain't got no business over there, things like that. So they've been taught to hate America. And um, that's got to change if this republic is going to survive. I think we have Andy back now. Yes, I'm back. I mean, just, I was in the middle of talking, and all of a sudden I heard, thank you for using Black Talk Radio. <laughs> I'm back and that's strange because every time I go to call one of our guests, it seems like when I come back, nobody's at home. <laughs> he dropped out. <laughs> it, it, so yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a connection there. I don't know. I honestly don't don't know. But uh, I've, I've got a partial view of the switchboard, so I can't my own thing to try to call that to uh, James Carafano, but uh, we're just hoping that he'll call in. If not, you know, you were talking about education, and uh, what we did here in South Carolina is that we passed legislation signed by the governor uh, that it started off with the college level, uh, secondary education, college, university, that you must teach the founding documents. Are you aware that most law students, or almost all law students today, have never read the Constitution, have never been taught the Constitution? I'm not Would you surprised. This is, this is the quality of lawyers that we have coming out of our colleges and universities. But here in South Carolina, it's mandatory that they are taught. And now they've brought it back down to regular uh, education. I forget which grade, uh, but I think it's on the junior high and high school level 
And when I was a political science major um, back in 2011, 2012, I mean, we have 38-something presidents, something like that, and we discussed every single president um, for that whole semester from George Washington to to Harrison to um, McKinley on up to Woodrow Wilson and, you know, all the way up to present day. And that's the kind of education that's lacking today, you know, in-depth, you know, studies of uh, our presidents, our, our institutions, as they were originally, you know, meant to 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 be, and um, how this country was built on freedom, and they just don't teach that anymore. No, no, and. Uh- According to the students today, you know, our founding fathers were racist, blah, 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 blah. But if it was, if that was the fact, if that was the truth, then why did they build the mechanisms into the Constitution that allowed us to bring around abolition, that allowed us to fight the Civil War and keep the Union together? They knew it was going to be a fight, but they knew in order to form the country, they had to get past that first. And they said, that's a fight for a later date. The more important thing is our independence first. Let's establish the independence, establish the government. And once that is done, then we work for abolition. Because the abolition movement did not just blossom in 1865. It was at work for a long number of years, especially when new states were being admitted. There was always a battle whether or not it was going to be a free or slave state. And it looks like we have our guest. And yep. let me see. I've got him. I've got him. Good afternoon. He's got my message. Carabano of Heritage Foundation. You have to apo- I have to apologize. My computer system, my whole Internet is down, and I'm operating off my cell phone right now. But we got you. <laughs> see, technology will find a way. Remember the, the world's greatest philosopher, Jeff Goldblum. Right. You know, we always said life will find a way. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, so really, Mike, such an really an honor to be with you, though. Oh, it's always so much fun to have a fellow paisano. Anyway, but I, I have to warn you, uh, Tom. I got his email that you were coming on just ten minutes before going on air, so I do have you in the show description. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, but I don't know where to start with you. I mean, there's so much to talk about, so much that is going on. And right now we've got this, uh, do we call it a showdown uh, between Biden and Putin? And, and I mean, this, is, this is comedy central. You can't make some of this stuff up. Yeah. Let me unpack this because I know this has got to be like confusing for a lot of Americans like Ukraine. What's going on here? Why do we care? And, you know, first of all, we ought to put the nonsense off the table. Americans are not going to go fight in Ukraine. That's just not going to happen. Um, we don't have we don't have a treaty alliance with them. We don't have a responsibility to defend them. They're not part of NATO. There are also 44 million Ukrainians, and those 44 million Ukrainians are more than willing to fight in their own defense, and and we help arm them. So this is not about endless wars or any of that nonsense, you know. And and why do we care? Why are we engaged at all? 
And it's because, look, Europe is a vital interest to the United States. China is a global challenge. And if anybody thinks that we could take on China and alone, they're just they're smoking something other than a cigarette. Because <laughs> if if America is isolated in the world and we have no friends in Europe, then this would be like the kid who can't leave his room, not even go to the bathroom. I mean, we cannot survive this. You know, in the end, we wound up fighting World War II because at the end of the day, we realized that if Japan controlled half the world and Germany controlled the other half, then you just kiss freedom and democracy goodbye. America needs a free world to lead. We need Western Europe. And Putin's ultimate goal is to use countries like Moldova and Ukraine uh, and Georgia to really destabilize the West, cause NATO to collapse, and have the American lead so he can have free reign running around Western Europe. And, and of course, this is, this is the Chinese, you know, this is their dream day, right? So we're not going to go fight World War III over Ukraine. But having said that, we would be idiots, more than idiots, if we sat by and watched Putin put his iron fist on Ukraine and, and did nothing about that. That would be dumb. And, and what we're seeing from Biden is exactly what we see from Obama, which is what is the bare minimum I could do to make this go away? This is this very cautious, incremental, risk-averse uh, thing. And, so, and, and he just looks – I'm sorry, he just looks weak. He meets with Putin and says, okay, we'll solve this. We'll have a meeting between Russia and NATO, right? You know, thinking, ah, oh, there, I've defused the whole situation. So what does Putin do? He comes back the next day with a list of demands for a Russia-NATO meeting that cannot possibly be met. And so that just makes Biden look like an idiot. Not to mention, um, all of Europe pretty much hates Biden right now. He said, with major NATO countries. There are 28 countries in NATO. And when you tell other countries that you're not a major NATO country and your view is not important, that, because they have to live with the consequences of the decision, they're not very happy, happy either. So he didn't consult with most NATO countries. Most NATO countries don't agree with what the U.S. is doing. He looks weak and feckless. And, and just, that is just not a good look for an American president. No, your recommendation then would be, what, do we supply the Ukrainians uh, with arms? So that they can fight the uh, Russians? Absolutely. You know, we, we, should, we should support them. Um, we, should, we should not only reject uh, Putin's offers, but we, we should look in his face and laugh at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what Biden suggested was, well, if you do something, we will, you know, put sanctions on you. Well, they don't care about that. I mean, these authoritarian regimes, they don't have to look. Sanctions are for punishing countries, not for deterring them. If you invade Ukraine, we will reinforce NATO. So basically you're telling him if you don't invade Ukraine, we won't reinforce NATO. I mean, it's just – honestly, it looks like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And, and so somebody – we were just with a foreign delegation. Now, I won't tell you where they're from, but they looked me in the eye and said, you guys are all screwed up. Where did this start? And I think in part it started with Nord Stream 2. This is that pipeline between Russia and Germany which enormously empowers Russia. And, and we just gave that to Putin for free, for nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and then right behind that, we do this embarrassing withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think the, Putin says, America is disengaging, looking weak, trying to placate me. Now is the time to push. 
And I, I think, like, one or two things are going to happen here. Either he's going to have embarrassed the United States and stressed us out and everything. We're all in the middle of Christmas, um, and that's bad. Or he, or he just wakes up and said, you know what? Now's the time to solve Ukraine once and for all. And we have a winter invasion of Ukraine, and we have a, a, a very terrible war. And, and you know, honestly, I, I think I, I don't think it's too much to say it will be Biden's fault because if Putin invades the Ukraine, it's because of American weakness, not because, you know, just like that, all the misery, the million people are going to starve in Afghanistan this winter. That's Biden's fault. Um, we just had hundreds of people killed and injured in a horrible human smuggling accident in Mexico because they're rushing here because of Biden's open border. That's his fault. His, the blood on his hands from his inept policies, more people have died from COVID in the United States than died under Donald Trump, is, is enormous. It is the quiet catastrophe that nobody's talking about. Under President Biden's leadership, there's been more misery and death in the world because of his specific policies. And I don't say that to gloat. I don't say that because I'm a political enemy, because I, I don't do politics. I'm not a, I don't even belong to a political party. I say that because it's true. Well, you know, you mentioned Afghanistan, and that was something I've been harping on ever since he pulled the boner move. And, you know, uh, Benjamin Smith sent me a map, and I, I looked at the map, and I go, you know, it, it, it was so blatantly honest. When they took Afghanistan, they now have a leaping stone through Iran and Iraq to take over a whole entire caliphate so they can have a Muslim caliphate under Chinese Communist Party control. But what does that give them? It gives them access to all those, those um, rare earth minerals that we need to make special uh, – parts for our, our electronics as well as for the batteries for our electric cars or the lithium batteries that are in our, our phones and our other devices. You know, we gave them access to such a wealth. And what is, what is this administration doing? Pushing electric cars, which need what? Rare earth minerals. So we're become so, enslaved to China. So, I mean, you envision a world where Look, first of all, the Chinese already have a massive presence in Africa. So they're going to use that pipeline from Afghanistan to Iran to control the Middle East. They control Africa. Russia has pushed us out of Western Europe. The Chinese are, are pushing to make inroads in Latin America. What, what do you think's left for us? This is, I, there's a wonderful book called Visions of Victory. And um, it, it's done by Gerhard Weinberger, who's a wonderful historian. And he, and he, and he went, and he, which is not difficult, he went and he found the, the papers of all the different countries that were fighting World War II and what, what they saw as victory. And if you read Japan's paper, they would basically control all of Asia, Alaska, parts of the Northwest, California, and parts of Latin America. Germany would control all of Western Europe and the Middle East, and they would actually look to the United States as a, as a place of you know, additional labor, and, and, and they would repatriate all the Germans from, from the United States back to America. So you know, if, if they had gotten their way and we had just stayed out of World War II and said we don't want to do anything, we would have been sitting in a country that half of it, the 
portions of it would actually be owned by foreign countries. We would have no access to world resources. We would have no access to trade in the world. They, they call that slavery. And, you know, people – look, I don't want to fight endless wars. I don't want to be the world's policeman. You know, I don't want to be the world's traffic cop. I don't want to be the world's babysitter. But I want my children to live in a society that is secure and peace and free and prosperous. And if you think you can do that by sitting at home on your hands with evil people like Vladimir Putin and, you know, Xi running around and the, and the mullahs in Tehran, you're just, you're just living in a la-la land. No, and we've had the weakest president ever, ever. And, I mean, I swear, when Jimmy Carter took office, I thought there would never be a president worse than him. And then Obama took office, and I thought there would never be one worse than him. Now Obama, uh, Obama, Biden is in office, and I pray there is never one worse than him. You, look, th- this isn't that hard. You don't like Donald Trump. I get that. You don't like tweeting the orange hair or whatever. It matter. But, you know, in four years, who's the first modern president didn't start a war. Um, and the Chinese feared him, the Russians feared him, the Iranians feared him, the North Koreans feared him. All of America's enemies sat back on their hands because they feared Donald Trump. And all he did was take a page out of Ronald Reagan's book and say, I believe in peace through strength. I will defend my interests. If you come after me, I will slap you silly. And yeah. he cowed the world's enemies. And very, you know, we had, you know, at the end of Afghanistan, there were no deaths of American troops in Afghanistan in virtually the last year of Donald Trump's presidency because the Taliban were afraid to come after us. So that we don't have to be weak. And we also don't have to be the world's dictators or the world's, you know, arsenal or anything else. We just have to have the courage to stand and protect our interests. That's all we're asking for here. But we have a president who's, who I, I who has who has not done? And I fear. Look, what these guys are doing are the one. They're like playing poker with the world's worst poker player. And and and, and the thing is, was, hey, let's keep playing, dude. Because you know, don't don't go anywhere. I mean, get, get the guy a cigarette. Get him another drink. Let's just keep the game going. Um, because the alternative is, you know, you pull out a gun like Tony Soprano and you rob the whole game. Um, I just hope our enemies just keep thinking we can just play this guy. You know, until we get a better foreign policy and a better president, because I got to tell you, if somebody decides let's just solve our problems one way, one way or another, you know, once and for all, let's let's grab Ukraine, let's let's grab Taiwan or whatever. Who knows where that's going to end? You know, we yeah. we almost have nobody left. You know, for a long period in our history, we had Americans who lived through two world wars, and the one thing they would tell you is don't have a third. We are on the verge of not having a living American who ever lived through a world war. And remember how really horrible and terrible that is. And you, know, you can do a lot of things wrong in foreign policy, and inflation, and everything else. But, dude, you do not want a world war. Because the next time, billions of people will die. And it will be hell on earth. And not a person worth living. And the, the problem is, is American weakness, American indifference, the absence of American leadership, whether you like it or not, that makes a world war more, not less likely. Well, um, you wrote an article about our Biden's policies inviting the next Pearl Harbor. And you look at what's going on today, and it's a very real possibility, isn't it? 
Well, I, I think, like I said, I think what's more likely is the Russians and the Iranians and the, the Chinese will just keep uh, taking advantage of them. I, I tell you, you know what I really worry about is another 9-11. He, he ran away from Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda's back. They were humiliated for 20 years. They have to recover their respect. And the way they will do that is they will organize another terrorist attack in the United States from Afghanistan. They will kill Americans in larger numbers, and they will and they will humiliate us. And they have a perfect venue to do that because we have a wide open border, and they'll just walk a team in across that border, and they will find something and and kill a bunch of people. And I I, I worry about that every every day. I, so it's again, I'm not trying to beat up on the administration, but you have an open border. You've recreated a global terrorist threat. You you ba- basically begged them to kill us. You're weak with the Russians. You're weak with China. You know, I, people say, well, you know, people like, so why, why would we worry about Ukraine? We, we should be defending our own border. Yeah, yeah, we should actually do both, you know, so. Well, there's a, there's a lot to talk about, and especially now with that Mississippi senator uh, saying that nothing should be off the table. Well, I agree nothing should be off the table, but then he mentions having a nuclear attack, attack Russia with nukes. I mean, really? Uh, do we really want to go that far to that extent? No, and I, look, I mean, this and people do these extreme things because they want us to believe that there's like I don't know nothing we can do. We're, we're not going to start World War Three over the Ukraine. We're not going to attack Russia. But the opposite of that is is not doing nothing. Um, and the opposite of doing nothing is not declaring World War Three. As a matter of fact, if you if you don't want World War Three, uh, the best way to do that is to demonstrate the willingness to defend yourself and stand with your friends and allies. You know, if we'd have done that in 1940, you know, there wouldn't have been a 1941. It's ironic to me that the day after the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, Biden hosts a summit of democracies in which he stabs a democracy like Ukraine in the back and demonstrates no, no interest or willingness to talk about the defense of democracy. Um, it, it's almost like like history doesn't matter. Like like we can ignore the fact of what evil people do in your back is turned, or when you turn it when you when you're weak with them. I mean, I, I don't understand what what's so hard to get that. You know, it's like these cities where they like defund the police, right? And they and they're shocked that crime goes up. I mean, really. Well, James, it has been a pleasure. I wish we had more time, but we're down to our last three and a half minutes. Um, welcome you back. You know, anytime. Love to have you. Oh, it's such a great show. I would love to do that, whether you're on your cell phone or in your command post with your satellite and, and <laughs> thanks with supercomputers. It would be an, always be an honor to be on your show. I, you know me. I, I am such a fan of talk radio and what you guys do. I think it's the only place in the public square today where people can have real, long, honest conversations, uh, not be politically correct, say what's on their mind. I think Americans increasingly go to public radio or to to, to, uh, talk radio because that's where they can hear where the the message isn't managed. And, and, And I think people want to hear talk about that. So people like you that do what you do, I think you are the savior of this place and democracy. And, uh, I, I don't know how we, I don't know how we would survive without you. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Now you've got me blushed. You're lucky you can't see uh, me the camera off. <laughs> you can't get me blushed on the radio. Don't worry about it. Thanks again for having me. 
It's our pleasure. James Carafino, check him out at heritage.org. He's got some excellent, excellent articles up there. Uh, I'm sorry that we've had so many problems today, Curtis, but, you know, Mm -hmm. it is what it is. Yeah, it's not even Friday the 13th. I know, I know. Uh, Just want to remember, yeah, just want to remind everyone, next week, Curtis will be hosting along with Guido Esposito. Uh, I am having my surgery the day before. And I have no idea what time the hospital would uh, release me, if they release me the next day. Um, so the, they have to keep a special eye on me. <laughs> I'm a problem child. <laughs> anyway. Oh, no. <laughs> and I'll send you some potential guests, you know, names of some potential guests. Okay. Well, I've got a plan, um, so you can tell me what you can, and, and I'll get whoever I can fit in, because I've already got some people booked already into uh, next year. So, yeah, uh, we are starting wow. to work real fast, and hopefully I'll get this technical difficulty fixed and fixed fast. I mean, I swear that I, I, I'm, I'm right now mm, biting nails. That's how, that's how angry and frustrated I am. So, uh, But that's all we got for now for, for Curtis. Um, like I said, yeah. Vito will be here in my place next week, and the guests are already lined up. Yeah. Uh, yes, oh, so you a, do have some guests lined up for next Friday. Yes, okay. yes. Uh, I sent it over to you. The page is already up uh, on the uh, Blog Talk Radio website. Oh. So if you look through my episodes, it's already up there. Um, it's uh, uh, Julio Gonzalez uh, will be there. You Julio see him up Gonzalez. on Newsmax. Yeah, Newsmax, Fox. You see him all over the place. Newsmax. Uh, okay. He actually asked. He said, no, I want to come on. And I said, well, I'm not going to be there. I don't care. I want to come on. So he's going to be there. Well. Uh, your guest next week, you've got the dedication for the Thrasher. Uh, then they have Mark Tapscott, also someone, again, from Heritage. So you're you're, you're pretty booked. So you have a little bit of a time we're, that you and Vito can. Uh, well, I'll Vito talk to you in, tomorrow, yeah. and um, I'll find out what vacancies we do have. I, I got at least one person want to fill, fill um, a spot yeah. next week. You'll have a spot Alrighty. between uh, two and three. That's the one hour that's okay. open. All right. Okay. Well, that's, that's all we got for today. And, guys, I want to thank everyone that hung out in the chat room and stayed with us. I appreciate your loyalty and your friendships. Uh, so I'm glad that you did. I'm praying for this land I love America America The home of the free But there are people making plans To change America They've no respect for her What matters most to me That's why I stand for the flag And I kneel at the cross Long for the friends I have loved and lost And I still believe in God we trust And the freedom I fought for these grand I hope it's not too late To save America Do you feel how that crime 